Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis, and at Ovnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Time for the podcast. Welcome back to the Contrarians. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Crazy Kwanzaa, all that good stuff. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. This will be posted on Christmas Eve, though. That's what we're aiming for, right? Fuck yeah. Well, okay. okay well, hang on. <laughs> Maybe Christmas Day. Okay. But yeah, Christmas. It will be. If it's not posted by the twenty sixth, then we just fucked up. Yeah, done fucked up. So we're here this holiday season to celebrate Columbus Day, and no, not the day that Christopher Columbus discovered our country, but. Um, a time of year that Chris Columbus, the American filmmaker, has made his own. I think that he's definitely, and it, it's it's kind of it's awesome because he hasn't really made a show out of it. You know, he quietly has taken over Christmas, and people mm-hmm. don't even notice. They don't really know, but he's he's the man behind Christmas. <laughs> he is. He is jolly old Saint Chris, if you will. But we're here today. Uh, we selected what we believe to be the best representation of his contributions to the Christmas film genre. Yeah, we cherry-picked titles from his filmography that best represent... Because uh, pretty much everything he's done somehow ties into Christmas. Yeah, yeah. But this is kind of like uh, uh, the recent Steve Jobs movie, where they just take... The, the whole movie is just three days in his life, three like at very different stages in his career. This is also like five movies... At different stages in Chris Columbus's career, five kind of days did. in Chris Columbus's life. Yes, <laughs> you could say that, and and they're all at very different stages in his life and career, so that they all tell you a different thing about what he felt about the world and Christmas at mm-hmm. the time. Yeah. So we'll go chronologically here with the ones we've selected. Uh, we're going to start off in 1984. Uh, June 8th of 1984, to be precise. The only one on the list that wasn't actually aimed at being a Christmas movie. Oh, it wasn't? I didn't know that. Yeah, it came out in June of 1984. And that, of course, is Gremlins, which stands at a mighty 85% on the Rotten Tomatoes. It was written by Chris Columbus, directed by Joe Dante, who is, in my book, famous for an uncredited directing role in Rock and Roll High School. Corman classic. Excuse me. With a uh, budget. forgive me, forgive me, Roger Corman. <laughs> budget of eleven million dollars, box office of one hundred fifty three point one million. It was a big smash. It's um, regarded as the PG thirteen innovator, along with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Um, I believe we've had this discussion on the podcast before, though, about how Saturday Night Fever with John Travolta was the real PG thirteen innovator because. Because it features somebody getting raped, and it was... Well, no, because there was the R rating, but then Welcome Back Cotter came out, and so they wanted to market it to more mainstream, so they made a PG cut of it, and, you know, at that point, I'm like, maybe we should come up with something for the in-between. Saturday Night Fever is very hilarious, because there's a lot of people that will watch it now that don't remember the rape scenes over and over again. Right. But, uh, yeah, so we have Gremlins here. It's we'll... hilarious for us. Yes. Not for them that are watching it <laughs> with their kids. Yeah, and exactly. don't realize that what they're getting into. But Gremlins, yeah, it had the 
PG-13 spawned the idea of it because it's not like vulgar enough to be an R rating, but there are scenes of intense violence and brutality in it and some pretty morbid things. To me, it's just the tale of uh, Christmas gone bad and that you get a good gift and then it's taken away from you. Uh, I think that's part of it. Also, I mean, we are we are contrarians. So really, one of the reasons we selected this one is because it has a high score. Mm-hmm. But it's not. When you look at the rest of uh, Chris Columbus's filmography, this kind of stands out as like, uh, this is not that good. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of his stuff that we, we picked that has lower scores, even though they're better movies. And this one is kind of, you know, appealing to the public. And that is partly because... Uh, Joe Dante, I think he really got in the way of what Chris Columbus was trying to say. And that may may make it a more popular movie, but it also makes it a lesser movie, less ambitious, less uh, complex. Uh, I mean, yeah, there is that, that aspect of, oh, well, be careful what you wish for and, you know, the, the gift that gets taken away. But there's also, I think, knowing Chris Columbus the way I know him now after marathoning five of his movies <laughs> – and and all the others that I've seen before, I think there was more to it originally because the movie takes a very like a sharp turn into a horror movie about halfway through, mm-hmm. and I think that the way we were going originally, it was more about just how people treat. Originally, I was going to say you know how they treat their pets, but even further, how they treat their kids. If you want to like even examine it more, you know. You have gremlins, and it's so cool when you have one, and he's so cute and everything. But then you start getting more, and then you just you just can't keep track of them. So so it becomes a plague. You know, you have like all these children, all these gremlins mm-hmm. in quotation marks, just running amok, and it's like, well, is it really their fault? They don't know any better, but you just you can only handle so many of them. So and then you just shoehorn them into a room and make them watch Disney movies, right? And it's like you just that's the best you can do. Eventually, I mean, Snow White only lasts for two hours. So, uh, but for anyone who hasn't seen Gremlins, uh, basically it's the story of uh, Billy Peltzer. That's his name, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, Zag Galligan. I think that's his his real name. His deadbeat dad waits till the last minute to give him a Christmas gift. Yes, he's an inventor. Yeah, so that's uh, and uh, yeah, he finds a in some store in Chinatown. I think he finds this little creature. Gizmo. Gizmo. And he basically seals it from the owner uh, because, of course, he's an American and he will have whatever he wants. <laughs> so he 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 gets the, the owner's, uh, I don't know, grandson or something to sell it for him because mm-hmm. uh, the owner doesn't want to give him up. And, uh, and then he takes him and there's basically three rules with this little creature if you want to take care of him. Don't get it wet. Don't get it wet. Uh, don't expose him to bright lights, especially sunlight. Sunlight will kill it. And don't feed him after midnight. That's allegedly the most important one. And of course, you know, this this Asian kid tells that to the American, and the American was like, "Yeah, yeah, I get it, kid, I get it." <laughs> uh, to his credit, he does tell the rules to his son, mm-hmm. but then his son just kind of like botches things up pretty quickly. So with the assistance of Corey Feldman. Corey Feldman. It, it, this is a movie that is just so mixed. I have such mixed reactions because there's a lot of gold in it, mm-hmm. and then there's also, but 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 then again, I'll, I'll blame Joe Dante for it. I think that he just squandered all the potential that was in the actors and in the story. I mean, Josh Reinhold is in it, mm-hmm. and he's there for like two scenes, and then you never see him again. He's uh, he's Billy's, uh, I guess, boss. He's like the vice president of the bank that he works at, and. 
You don't seem like you don't even he doesn't even come back to get killed by a gremlin. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so the yeah, they botched the rules. So what happens is, yeah, they're hurt by bright light. If you get them wet, they multiply. Mm-hmm. And if they eat after midnight, they become monsters. Yeah. So, of course, he accidentally gets Gizmo wet, which spawns like five other uh, little creatures. And then those creatures are nowhere near as nice as Gizmo and their intent of becoming monsters. So they eat after midnight. They trick him into feeding, feeding them after midnight. And then they become monsters. And then the movie becomes a monster movie. <laughs> and, and that's when uh, things just kind of... They become very ordinary. I I think it's a good, it's a well-made horror movie after that, but it abandons everything that Chris Columbus was trying to do in that first half, which Mm -hmm. was explore what happens when you have more mouths to feed than your means will allow you. Especially at Christmas. At Christmas. That's the worst time. I mean, you start with like the tiny, almost insignificant uh, plight of the, the inventor that doesn't have a gift for his son. And then eventually you transition to like this. He's not a teenager. I mean, how old is Bill in this movie? Because on one hand, I was thinking, come on, man. Why, why is your dad so worried about getting you a Christmas present when you're like clearly at least in your 20s? <laughs> <laughs> but then he becomes responsible. He already has a dog. And now he has like a little creature like Gizmo. And then suddenly he has five more. And he can't keep track of them. Mm. You know, he just – he has them in a box at some point, which – you know, it's that's heavy stuff to deal with. If you if imagine that Billy's a single mom, and and the Mogways are his kids, you know that's Chris Columbus is trying to tell you something here about about birth control, about population control, about what happens when you just can't afford to have these many kids, but you have them anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, it's at a, Christmas. At Christmas, you know, it's it just it, it just ruins everything. Uh, it's yeah. But you think uh, Joe Dante dropped the ball with this one? Well, yeah, because that story is going a certain way, you know, and and what we would later come to know as as Chris Columbus' greatness, mm-hmm. you know, he and uh, but then Joe Dante was like, well, no, I actually I think this works better as just like a horror movie. So once they become monsters, you you really all this interesting stuff that's been set up in the first half of the movie just becomes like monster fodder. Every character you met in the first hour of the movie just gets killed or really badly hurt by the gremlins uh, later on. Fair enough. I mean, that's... uh, Then the other thing is... Phoebe Cates? Well, yeah. (laughs) 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 There's there's no way to hide the fact that we're both, like, you know, full hot-blooded males. (laughs) And there was... She is extremely attractive. Yes. (laughs) It's a shame that she's not in more movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Props to Kevin Klein. Way to go, Dave. Yeah. Uh, but uh, she's great in this movie, and we don't get enough of her. Mm-hmm. And, again, I think that she probably got – her character got cut out of, uh, you know, a lot of more stuff. Because once you become – this is the 80s, mm-hmm. you know. This is before uh, before Ripley, before, you know, all these other strong female characters that could have held their own in a horror movie. So, of course, once you turn into a monster movie, you kind of had to, like, sideline her character. And that's that's a shame because she's great. You, you built her up before. She has like a hatred for Christmas, and then you find out why. And you know, yeah, and it's devastating. It, it, it's it's a pretty brutal story about her dad sliding down the chimney because he was pretending to be Santa and then breaking his neck <laughs> and getting stuck in the chimney. Uh, but yeah, there's. A, I think that the movie does a good 
a good job setting stuff up. You know, you have the the racist neighbor mm-hmm. that it's all about buying American uh, machinery, and uh, but he does it with this like undercurrent of racism every time that he says something. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, they set up like a, a town that's like many of his movies. I'm. We'll come back to this later. With Christmas, uh, Christmas with the Cranks. You know, he just mm-hmm. likes setting up a whole town and then using that town as a backdrop for yeah. the big drama. Absolutely. Uh, but but yeah, ultimately, uh, I think that they, they dropped the ball. I mean, from the very beginning, as soon as they become monsters, the first casualty, a black guy. I know it was the 80s, but still, come on, man. You need yeah. to break out of that, that role. I mean, Joe Dante was just following. It could have at least it. been Carl Weathers. No, it's just like some regular guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, at least they gave him a job. He was like the science teacher or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, but he was a dick, though. He he took Gizmo's blood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he, and he seemed to enjoy it a little too much. Yeah, he, he got what was coming. So we fast forward six years to uh, November 16th of 1990 for Home Alone, which is easily one of the most beloved Christmas movies of any generation, any era. But not by Run Tomatoes. no. It surprisingly stands at 54%, so it straddles that line. Um, not even. It's registered as rotten. <laughs> I was going to say it straddles the line. Uh, but it, it straddles the line of this person likes it, this person doesn't. But this was directed by Chris Columbus, and it was written by John Hughes, uh, probably the most famous 80s film yep. contributor. I guess he was transitioning into the 90s. Uh, this uh, was a box office bonanza with a budget of $18 million and a box office of $476.7 million. It was not expected to be a hit. Uh, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern both took it as work, and they did not give a genuine effort. They tried to do their thing as most over-the-top as possible because they didn't think it was a movie that was going to get anywhere. And then they were like, oh, shit, they made a lot of movie, and now we <laughs> signed up for a sequel. I guess they couldn't get out of that. That's, um, it's tricky. Home Alone, I mean, it's right in the middle. It would be what we would normally make uh, a gray area episode of. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we a split on this? I, I, I don't remember. We were talking a little bit about it earlier. In- Home Alone is a great film, but it's also celebrated for the wrong reasons. It's also <laughs> a movie of a, of a very tormented white kid who is... Gonna, gonna do some serious damage at some point in his life. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I saw it and I was I was kind of blown away by it. I hadn't seen it in a long time, and it just the fact that I had forgotten probably because I hadn't seen it since I was really young, and so this was what the movie's really saying really went over my head. Mm-hmm. But it's a really strong critique of just white upper upper middle class, you know, because they're like the the McAllisters, they're not rich. But yeah. they're pretty well off. Mm-hmm. They they're planning extravagant trips, and the uh, the incomparable Catherine O'Hara, being Catherine O'Hara, Kevin's mother. Yep, they're but they they've kind of like they have so many kids. And again, you know, here we go with the th- the theme of having too many kids to really be able to take care of them properly at Christmas. At Christmas <laughs> you know, that's that's really something that clearly weighs on uh, Chris Columbus's mind. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Home Alone. I can't imagine anybody not knowing the story. It, it, but also to the critique of it, it speaks into that white hubris thing of I have so many things that oh, I can just forget about a child. Right, right. Go back to Gremlins. You know, it's just that the hubris of like I, I know that there's this secret, this secret exotic Asian creature that obviously needs a lot of special care. I'll just take it anyway. The difference between this and Gremlins is, though, is that you know CPS doesn't come in at the end of the movie and say, (laughs) 
you don't know how to take care of this thing. I'm going to take it away from you. Whereas even in, though they, they kind of like travel all around America and even the world because they go to France at the beginning, kind of explain to everybody that they forgot their child. Yeah, and no one does anything. Whereas in Gremlins, that you know, wacky Asian guy comes back and says, you're not ready and takes yes, it away. Yeah, he, that, was, that was almost like Chris Columbus telling Joe Dante, you're not ready for this kind of story. Give it, give it. Give it back. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the McAllisters are obviously they're, – they're kind of terrible people. And uh, but that's okay. You have to start with terrible people so you can end with an arc to the end of the movie. They're terrible people, but somehow from that has blossomed this great person. Be it a psychopath, Kevin, but he also is a great person in that the creepy shovel guy he reunites with his children. Yeah, he he is. It's like a, I'm I'm gonna go back to Steve Jobs because it's such a great movie from this year <laughs> but you know there's a moment in, in, in Steve Jobs where they talk about Steve Jobs' daughter and how she she had no there's no way that she could have turned out as well as she did considering how she how she was treated by her father and yet she turned out okay and that's kind of like the same the same thing with Kevin McAllister the Macaulay Culkin character even with this shitty family it's kind of a miracle that he that he turns out as okay as he did, you know, that he's as resourceful and that he's not more messed up than he is in the movie and then later in the sequel. Uh, and I think that the only the only explanation is that he is an American. He was born in America. So even if you're neglect, neglected by your family and misunderstood by your peers, there's still you have that American spirit, that can-do attitude that will allow you to survive even if you're only eight, year old, eight years old and abandoned by your family and uh, under siege by these robbers. And it really comes to light at Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing: like Christmas is the perfect uh, setup for a movie, the perfect time to set a movie because emotions run high and everything is instantly magnified. Mm-hmm. So leave a kid alone on a regular day, and that's—I mean—that's sad and that's troublesome or whatever. But leave a kid alone at Christmas, and that instantly becomes more tragic and a lot more. It, it hits you harder. It, it leaves that kid with you know everything to fight for any yeah. day but today type of thing yeah he's not just fighting for his life but he's fighting for christmas mm-hmm. and and there's all christmas is all over this movie even more so than than with gremlins here you know kevin is decorating the house and when he goes shopping there's you know the christmas music and all that stuff it's it's really good i mean clearly he has mental issues uh, which you know he has to because he's just growing but up. But he family. chambers them well. He goes to church on Christmas Eve for Christ's sake. Right. I mean, That's yeah. what I mean. You know, ultimately he can still get through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That that the, the the creepy man with the shovel. You know, I think that that is is something that he'll come back to in the in the sequel. There's so many themes from here that get revisited in the sequel, uh, even in a in an even more powerful manner. But it starts here because there's. How many of us are usually weary of creepy old men? In just we're just judging a book by their cover at this point. And that's what Kevin does in this movie. And then eventually he actually at church, no less, he gets to talk to this man and realize that he's just another person mm-hmm. that has his own set of problems, his own set of uh, difficult family members to deal with. Uh, they're just we're all alike, and it's not just because it's Christmas, but at Christmas is the best time to connect. Yeah, and this one particular instance forced Kevin McAllister to just grow up literally overnight. It, yeah, he's he's he, a grown man by he, the time this is over. He goes to war and he comes out changed, which is is something going back to Gremlins that doesn't happen in Gremlins, and that's one of its big failures. Uh, Billy 
he doesn't change. He's, no one learns anything. No, no. In that movie, you know, Billy's really nice at the beginning. He's really nice at the end. There's really no lesson learned. The only lesson we take away from that movie is Phoebe Cates is hot as fuck. And she should have been in more movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, she came back for Gremlins too, and then she's like, I'm done. And then she met Kevin Klein and was like, <laughs> peace. He can make the movies. I'll just, I'll just chill. But we would be remiss if we didn't say, you know, for all the seriousness and there, there is a lot to take away from Home Alone and the psychological ramifications of all that. But we're humans, and at the end of the day, we do laugh. And in this movie, we're paired with, you know, one of the greater comedic performances of all time in Daniel Stern as he plays Marv of the Wet Bandits. Yes, uh, you need you need your sugar to go with the medicine. Yes, and so Columbus is. Clearly tackling serious issues, but it is a comedy, and he knows how to deliver on the prattful side. I mean, uh, I, I know, I know that uh, you you go to bat for Daniel Stern, mm-hmm. and I do too. I think he's great. Out of the two, I mean, clearly he gets the, the biggest laugh. But Joe Pesci's pretty game too. He does, yeah. I think it, Pesci, you know, he tries what he can within the comedic realm. I think he's just so programmed to be Goodfellas twenty four seven, the tough guy. Yeah. He's a tough guy, and Daniel Stern is the goofy guy. And uh, but together, I mean, I think that's a good combination. They are the wet bandits, and they they, they provide many many laughs. Yeah, they they're really. It, it, the best thing I think about it is that you you just don't expect it. They're this mm-hmm. unexpected comedy duo that hits you. If you told me that Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern were going to be like funny guys in this movie and I hadn't seen Home Alone, I'd be like, ah, I don't know. Because, yeah. yeah, you think Joe Pesci, you think Goodfellas, you think Daniel Stern, you think like the voice of the adult in The Wonder Years. You don't think, oh, this is going to be funny. They were the Seth Green and Breck and Meyer of their day. I yeah, yeah I, I can see that. It's... it's uh, you know, the, the unexpected comedy that just really hooks you and you want more of. Yeah. In this case, it was really lucky because we got a, a sequel. But yeah, I was about to say, it, we needed more of it. So <laughs> it was just a mere two years later. And uh, November 20th of 1992, to be precise, we had Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Again, directed by Chris Columbus and written by John Hughes. Um, a budget of $20 million increased a little bit as 12-year-old Macaulay Culkin's salary had to go up a little. With a, a slightly less box office return, three hundred fifty-eight point nine million, stands at a far less twenty-four uh, percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, absolute sidebar here, but I did find an interesting fact: um, McDonald's was heavily invested in the promoting of this film as they marketed many of their Happy Meals around this. Because previously in nineteen ninety-two, <laughs> they lost a ton of money when marketing Happy Meals around Batman Returns. Because if you've seen Batman Returns, you know if it's one thing, it's a children's movie. <laughs> well, you know it does start with the penguin floating down the river or the sewer or whatever as a and baby. And there's a scene where Michelle Pfeiffer bathes herself with her own tongue. Uh, yeah, I mean she pretty much dry humps Batman. I think in one. In one and there's moment. a scene where Batman straps a bomb to a guy and throws him down a mine shaft. That's what Batman does. That's literally what happened. Uh, some kid's mom watched Batman Returns and like called McDonald's and was like, "How dare you advertise this towards children?" So they tried to do that with Home Alone too, which, you know, at least Batman's kind of in a world of uh, fantasy, whereas Home Alone two, the violence is oh too real. Um, yes and no. I think that I mean, yes, <laughs> it's like that stuff is happening, but. I, I actually – here's my argument, which is – and I think that it, it really – a lot of people missed it. And they're kind of like not at fault for missing it because clearly Home Alone 1 takes place 
in this world, in the real world. Everything that happens, it it's explainable. Mm-hmm. In Home Alone 2, there is no way in the real world that Joe Pesci and and Daniel Stern would survive even half of the things that happened to them in Home Alone 2. Mm-hmm. Clearly, Home Alone 2, we're talking about mythical uh, environment. mythical. It's a mythical story. We're just off the reservation when it comes to realism. And, and that's good because that's a story that needs to be that way. I mean, what's the point in repeating Home Alone 1? Mm-hmm. You need to really up the stakes. You really need to make things happen. In a realistic world, there is no way that a family would forget their kid again. again. Yeah, you know? So you have to go in from the beginning. You have to know that it's going to be bigger, it's going to be better, and it's going to be just forget about realism because the only way to do it, uh, Home Alone 1 So like, the only it. way to pull this off would be like a dreamscape type thing. Right. It's like we're, forget so much. It's not so much about the logic. You know, there is this is just – this is more like a cover of Home Alone 1, just like an epic cover where like, but what if, you know, things were just crazier? What if like Marv and uh, – and uh, what's the name of uh, Joe Pesci's Harry? Marvin Harry could really take like a lot more punishment. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and what if Kevin, Kevin McAllister's luck was even like wilder? And let's fucking throw Tim Curry in there for no reason. Well, yeah, yeah. That's like, you need to make it bigger and better. And and Columbus did his best. I think Columbus and and John Hughes they really. I think that they went so far out that they just overshot mm-hmm. and they just went over everybody's heads. They just didn't get it, you know? Uh, so whereas the first movie is this critique of, of just uh, uh, the usual, like, white upper crust family. Now here, it's it's even a bigger condemnation. I think it's just talking about the human race in general not learning from their mistakes, you know? Just forgetting history and repeating the same bad things that you did just a year ago. Mm-hmm. It was just it's just been like one year since they left Kevin alone and they forget him again. They try to not forget him. Like they're very much aware of what they did last year and it mm-hmm. still happens. <laughs> you know, it's like I, I would expect Catherine O'Hara to just like chain herself to Kevin this this Christmas. Yeah. But no, it, it doesn't. They just miss him and it's not even like a big it's not like somebody comes and takes him. It's just them waking up late. For their flight again, Classic. running through the airport again, and this time the kid gets lost at the airport instead of being lost at, at home. It's it's a, but you know where you forget your keys is always the first place you should look type thing, like, right? And so you should look in New York. It's human nature. <laughs> they, yeah. they just forget him again. He goes to New York, and you know, kid's smart though. He's resilient, like he learned in the first movie. In this case, though, he just has access to credit cards and many other things that like he's fuck it they forgot me i'm gonna make him pay for it literally he is uh definitely that's the other thing that that both movies are and they're just kind of an ode to kids mm-hmm. they're really so many movies depict kids as being stupid and not being resourceful and just needing to be protected at all times whereas the home alone movies they really show you that they'll be okay i mean you shouldn't leave them at home alone but if you happen to leave them home alone Okay, calm down. They're yeah. going to be – because Kevin faces off against the worst possible scenario, and he comes out on top. Whereas in this one, Chris Columbus shows that kids can also be vindictive little assholes. They forget me again. I'm going to max out every one of the credit cards they have. <laughs> right. I'm going to go to the most expensive hotel that the, I can go to. These guys are going to try to fuck with me again. I'm going to kill them. Like, right, yeah. right. But going back to Tim Curry, I mean I think that that is uh, – you know, you you can't have the surprise of uh, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern anymore because you already have that in the first movie. Mm-hmm. Now you expect them to be good, so you need somebody else to come in and just just give you that unexpected comedy boost. Yeah. So you have Tim Curry and you have Rob Schneider, 
Which, oh, you do have Rob Schneider. Yeah, yeah, again, that's like a pairing that I wouldn't expect. Yeah. That's not what I expect to see in a movie. And yet you have them there, and they're just gold together. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also like some lady. She doesn't get as much screen time. And I don't know who the actress is because obviously she's not as popular as, as Tim Curry and Rob Schneider. No but, one's as popular as Rob uh, Schneider. Uh, right. That's like you will pale in comparison <laughs> if you're in, in the scene with those two. But uh, but yeah, they get there, and they're basically the secondary antagonists. They're, they're kind of like – fill-ins until Kevin gets to square off against Marvin Harry again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, And then there's the extra thing. Of course, you know, you're talking about this mythical reimagining of the story. And, of course, what better place to set it in than New York, mm-hmm. which is just like the perfect contrast of like really rich, awesome places and really scary, ugly, dangerous places. You know, so you have Kevin living large at this hotel, but then venturing in these like really scary areas. In the barrio. The barrio. He meets the pigeon lady, uh, who's uh, her his uh, spirit guide, so to speak. Uh, which actually we forgot to mention uh, John Candy in the first movie, mm-hmm. who's like, uh, uh, you know, there's because it's Christmas. Let's not forget it's Christmas. There's uh, guardian angels everywhere. So while uh, Kevin has the creepy old man in the first movie, Catherine O'Hara, the mom, has John Candy mm-hmm. on her on her trip to reunite with her son. He has, she has John Candy. Uh, who improved all of his lines? Did he mm-hmm. really? That's well, you know. Why am I surprised? It's John Candy. Yeah. That's, uh, uh, but yeah, in this movie, in Home Alone two, you get two other guardian angels. You have the pigeon lady, and you ha- who gets the end credit, by the way. Really? Yeah, she does. I was like, it has to be the pigeon lady because I was going through like the opening <laughs> credits, and it was like, and some lady. Okay, it has to be her. And uh, and there's also the guy that owns the toy store in New York. It's like this old man who's like when Kevin is talking to him, he doesn't know that he owns the toy store, mm-hmm. but he uh, he does, and he's talking about how he gives the proceeds of like the Christmas Day sales. They go to like some sort of charity, and that's why Kevin decides to like give him some money. Like he has a lot of money <laughs> from because he has his dad's bag, and he gives that. And anyway, that dad man, the pigeon lady, that like the the guardian angels, and it works. It's uh, Again, it's less believable everything that happens there, but I think it's less believable because with intention. That's mm-hmm. that's the way it was supposed to be. It's, it's the way that Christmas has been built to a mythical level of just unobtainability. Yes, it's a story that fits Christmas and in, in, in that way. Um, there is, I, I think, I mean, Catherine O'Hara gets all the props, but really, to me, the unsung hero of the two movies is the dad, uh, which now I know his name is John Hurd. Mm-hmm. Uh, and apparently he often gets confused or used to get confused back when he was like in a lot of movies uh, with John Hurt. <laughs> and uh, or Yeah, John Hurt and William Hurt. Uh, he was in the movie William Hurt together. I don't know. It's like, dude, let me let me actually let me read you his uh, IMDb bio because it's it's very telling. So listen to this. This is from uh, his IMDb mini biography. This who, is John John Hurt. Hurt. John Hurt. And I doubt that he wrote this. I think that somebody wrote this and it's just kind of weird. It says, John Hurt is a very talented actor who established himself in the late 1970s and early 80s with roles in the movies Between the Lines, Chilly Scenes of Winter, and Heartbeat, in which he played Jack Kerouac to Nick Nolte's Neil Cassidy and Sissy Spacek's Carolyn Cassidy. So he's worked with like, you know, a lot of awesome people. Yeah. Before giving a tour de force performance as a hideously wounded, both physically and psychologically, Vietnam veteran in Cutter's Way, opposite Jeff Bridges. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Here, here's where it gets like really weird. 
Uh, by the early 1980s, John Hurt seemed on his way to establishing himself as a major American actor, if not on the path to movie stardom. At the time, there was a joke that involved confusing Hurt with John Hurt and William Hurt because of the similarity of their last names. At the time, these contemporaries were considered equal in terms of their star power. That was 30 years ago. William Hurt went on to win a Best Actor Oscar, as well as enjoy leading man status as a movie star in the mid to late 80s before he flared out in the early 1990s. <laughs> Completely, like, just bashing William Hurt's career after the 90s. Uh, John Hurt become one of the, became one of the most respected actors of his generation, nominated twice for the Academy Award. Among Hurt's coasters of his early endeavors, Bridges and Spacek also went on to win Oscars, and Nolte has been a multiple nominee. In the early 80s, it would not have been unreasonable to predict that Hurd himself would become an Oscar winner or a multiple nominee. That didn't happen. <laughs> he did get nominated for an Emmy for his turn as a corrupt police detective on The Sopranos. So, I mean, clearly he didn't write this. No. And uh, somebody that wrote it, it's just kind of like giving this backhanded compliment of like, you know, he had potential and then it just didn't happen. <laughs> and then he did shit with it. Yeah, which is, it's just weird. Uh, and it here's the, the big finale. <laughs> he was on Modern Family. And he was in Big, too. Do you know he that? was, he, yeah. He's, he was he's Josh Baskin's yeah. nemesis. Yep. Uh, so he says, uh, Hurt is now best known for his two turns as Macaulay Culkin's fa- father in Home Alone, in the Home Alone movies. In the 1980s, he continued to work on A-list projects, playing the not-so-sympathetic song to Gerald and Page and the trip to Bountiful, and Tom Hanks' adult rival in Big for which Hanks won his first Oscar nomination. (laughs) (laughs) But this meant that by the latter part of the decade, he had failed to establish himself as a leading man and was doing supporting roles. Jeez. (laughs) Okay. Was this John Hurd's agent (laughs) that he fired? From the late 80s. (laughs) Right. It's like, listen, I had him on the good track, and then he fired me, and then he did (laughs) shit. Uh, But uh, he's really good. He's really good in the movie. He has a line, and I actually wrote it in my notes for Home Alone 2, where... uh, the the family has finally gotten to the hotel uh, where Kevin has been staying, but Kevin has fled because Tim Curry and Rob Schneider basically run him off. They yeah. they figure out who he was, and so Kevin escapes. And uh, and so when the family gets there, they're not he's not there, and they're just yelling at Tim Curry. Catherine Harris like going off on him. It's like, why did you scare him? Whatever. And uh, and then they're like, well, Tim Curry offers them a suite, and he's like, you can just stay here free of charge and whatever. And then. Catherine O'Hara and John Hurd start arguing because he's like, I'm going to go to the police. And then she said, well, I'm going to go out and look for him. And John Hurd's like, where are you going to go out there? It's like, it's New York. You're not going to find him. It's like a huge city. And Tim Curry keeps trying to like interject and agree with John Hurd. And like, ma'am, like, you know, he's right. And then John Hurd turns and he's like, can you stay out of this, please? And it's the greatest line ever. <laughs> the delivery, the way he just shuts Tim Curry down. Uh, of course, later on, like uh, like a minute later in that scene, Catherine O'Hare actually slaps him. But uh, mm-hmm. but John Hurt really, I think, had like the biggest like mic drop there. It was like the greatest dad moment. He's he's just really good in the movie. Uh, Catherine O'Hare gets the big storyline, but yeah. he's there just like a supporting character. I think he's really good. Um, it basically took everything that Home Alone one did well and just improved upon it. Yeah, which is you know again, it. it I like the repetition because I think that. It's it, that's the point uh, that as humanity we're just doomed to repeat our mistakes over and over, mm-hmm. uh, and very it, there's very little that will allow us to to change that. You know, we really we truly have to change. Catherine O'Hara, I think she truly changes at the end of the first one, but she can't fight human nature 
You know, uh, it, she she still loves her son, but she still manages to snap at him to the point where he would just wish that he didn't spend Christmas with them again. Yeah. And same thing with Kevin. You know, he loves his family by the end of the first one. But then the beginning of the second one, he once again resents being with them. And originally he's happy. So it's I think that it's just a very powerful statement on humanity and how we're just constantly we never really truly change we just attempt to change and any any big revelations we have about ourselves most of the time they're temporary and you know going back to like the third act and just pesci and and stern's resilience i mean by the time that that movie gets to the third act and it's kevin against the now they're the sticky bandits they're that's not right the, no, yeah the, the sticky the, bandits yeah by then it's just the movie's out of control i mean it's just pure cosmic forces because like from the very first confrontation, I mean, Daniel Stern takes like three bricks to the head. <laughs> like one brick would be enough to just put somebody out of commission. And Daniel Stern takes three bricks to the head, and then it's another twenty minutes of punishment for <laughs> the rest of the movie. Uh, he gets electrocuted to the point where we see a skeleton. Yes, exactly. And then all that happens is that his hairdo changes, <laughs> but nothing. Pesci gets his. <laughs> yeah. Pesci, in the first one, Pesci got his head set on fire and he put it out on the snow. So that's like kind of believable. Mm-hmm. In the second one, he gets his head set on fire. Then to put it out, since there's the snow, he dunks his head in the toilet, but the toilet is full of gasoline. So there's like a major explosion that would have killed anyone. <laughs> But of course, we're talking about you know this is like a fable. Uh, oh my God, I want to watch this movie right now. Yeah, it, it's it's insane. So this clearly, this is not regular people. I think they're a representation of just evil. They're evil incarnate because they're really they're very clear about wanting to kill Kevin if they get their hands on him. Yeah. So uh, they are uh, they're pure evil, and of course, the way they're finally defeated is also by an almost like an act of God because mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember like that the pigeon lady shows up yeah. and she just commands her army of birds to attack them. She's like Storm from X-Men. Just yes, like, pretty you know. much. It, and just like the first movie was kind of making a statement about you need to be nicer to, to creepy old men. This like you need to be nicer to the homeless because that lady is homeless and Kevin is just like he was with the creepy old man. He's originally afraid of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then maybe because he kind of learned something in the first movie he goes back to her and they become friends yeah and they have this this amazing discussion about human nature and uh, he realizes this may pay off later yeah and and it, it it's karma you know she comes and saves his, his life later so it's 12 years later we go back to christmas time with one chris columbus it's november 24th 2004 and it's time for christmas with the cranks Written by Chris Columbus. This was adapted from a John Grisham book. It's not. It has nothing to do with lawyers, though. No. It was directed by Joe Roth of Freedomland fame. Um, this was a Another movie. great movie. <laughs> yep. It's uh, with a box office of $60 million, Excuse me. Um, with a budget of $60 million and a box office of $96.6 million, this stands at a dismal 5% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, I I mean, we're not covering all of Chris Columbus's career. Uh so you would be like, "Wow, this guy, I can't he's kind of like Rob Zombie, he just keeps taking the hits from Rotten Tomatoes." But no, he has had some success in between all these movies. So, mm. uh still, a 5%'s got a sting. 
and especially when it happens to a movie that that takes place in your favorite time of the year. So yeah, uh, we just this is the movie that we just watched. Yes, was the cranks. We did. We, just, we were like still basking in its glow. It's an investment. Yeah, it, it's just it. Once again, I think it's one of those times where, unfortunately, because he was not directing, his screenplay kind of suffered at the hands of the director. Joe Roth may be very capable, but I don't think that he quite got what Chris Columbus was going for. Uh, and once again, like with Gremlins, which was directed by someone else, not by him, there is a very clear tonal shift halfway through the movie. Uh because we start with a movie that where the main characters are taking a stance against Christmas and and basically denouncing uh, how commercialized it's become. Mm-hmm. And then and also how much money they can save by denouncing it. Right. It's a very clever idea. Actually, I think that it's if he had caught on, America would be very different right now. Because, yeah, how much money would you save if you didn't celebrate Christmas? According to this one modest family of one child... They can save $6,400 by not having Christmas. That is a hell of a Christmas they're having. Yes. But I believe it. I may not celebrate Christmas like that. At the same time, on one hand, I like thinking that there are families in America that are spending almost $7,000 at the Christmas. Because you know what? That's the time to do it. Uh, But I'm, I'm open to Chris Columbus pointing the error of my ways and America's ways and saying, guys, maybe it's time to scale it down a little. (laughs) <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I don't think that Joe Roth got that or that he agreed with the with the sentiment because the movie eventually turns a right turn and then suddenly they're all for Christmas. Yeah, because the idea is that they decide to skip Christmas because their their daughter doesn't live with them anymore. She's on the Peace Corps, so she's going to spend she's not going to spend Christmas with them. So there's what's the point of celebrating Christmas then? So they cancel everything they ever do for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Their, their Christmas party, they don't buy presents for anybody, they don't take part of any Christmas-related activities. That's supposed to save them a lot of money, apparently. But yeah, then they find out she's coming home, and they're like, oh, God, we have to do it. So it's kind of like, uh, it's ironic, we were talking about this earlier, it's kind of like the attack of the clones of Christmas movies. Like, the first hour is really good and sets up something really promising, and then it just falls apart. It just falls apart, and, and not by, it's not Chris Columbus's fault. Uh, it's just that I think – and it wouldn't surprise me if it was studio pressure, you know? The studio was like, oh, is, this is the guy that did like Home Alone and Home Alone 2. Let's ban. Yeah, sure. Give us another Christmas movie. We got to have Tim Allen doing wacky hijinks. Here. Yeah. How could you – how could this fail? And then at some point, they screened the first cut of the movie and they're like, no, this is not no, – how can you tell somebody that's coming to the movies for Christmas that they shouldn't be celebrating Christmas? No. Change this. Change the third act. Bring the daughter back. Have them celebrate Christmas. And we got to have Jamie Lee Curtis chasing a runaway ham in <laughs> Because the audiences love that. They do. They do. They turned out and this movie made its budget back. How could it not? I mean, I may criticize. Two of the most beloved white actors of all time, Tim Allen and Jamie Lee Curtis. A little bit of assistance from Dan Aykroyd. Uh, Dan Aykroyd. That's right. I'm sorry. He's he's barely, but he's in there. He's in there. Every time he's there, he you hear him. He's he's making his presence known. You have Cheech Marin as a cop, so you know it makes you know the it gets the minority vote in there. Jake Busey as his partner, because if you can't get uh, Gary Busey, you might as well get a son and just get some some of the crazy in there. Uh, no, overall, it's it's. I mean, I'm not telling you that it's not a perfectly acceptable movie for Christmas, but I'm just saying that. 
this late in his career, I can completely understand how Chris Columbus wanted to do something more. He's like, I've done the feel-good Christmas movie. I just want to do something else. Because also he's older, he's wiser. He's he's realized what, what had happened to Christmas in you know throughout the years and yeah. he wants to to just do something about it. Um, this would this would have been the year after Elf, so he was really trying to like reestablish, you know, I'm tired of this sappy shit. It's like it's time to stop celebrating Christmas. Yes, and that first hour of Christmas with the crank is just just delicious. You just you know, you can feel uh the characters, Jamie Lee Curtis and, and, and Tim Allen just fighting against the establishment. Uh, and then the movie betrays them in the worst possible way. He, they completely do a 180. The entire neighborhood does a 180. Mm-hmm. Uh, all that conflict, inexplicably, uh, yeah, out of nowhere. All they, all it took is like dead accurate getting up on 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 a truck and saying, "Hey, we need to help them." And then yeah. suddenly it's all good. Uh, so but that, that's like an allegory for America in general, too. You just need the guy, the big, the big white guy with like the big booming voice and the good hair. As long as he's up there saying what's what's what, you know, they're gonna. Yeah, he's right. How did that? Yeah, because they're they're almost turning on them, and then he gets up on the truck and and saves them. But yeah, so yeah, five percent is, I think, a fair. I think it was just the critics' retaliation for the movie that. You know, the table that was set for us was not the meal that we were fed. Right. It, it was a miscalculation on the part of the studio. Uh, because I think that those people that, you know, that contributed to the 5%, if they had just... I think we they, are it, the 5%. Right. Yeah, we are the 5%. And I think that all the others... I think that they would think differently if they rewatched the movie. And now that there's been some time, you know, they could just come in and... Ultimately, they might give it a bad review, but they can't tell me that they didn't laugh when Tim Allen was like dangling from his roof after oh, trying yeah. to. That stuff works. It's good comedy, and for them to be so harsh with it, it just—I think that's the risk that you take when you make a movie set on Christmas. Like, like we mentioned yeah. before, emotions run high, everything is magnified. So when somebody doesn't like your movie, then they really don't like it, even if it's just just an average Christmas movie. And, you know, like we were talking about Phoebe Cates, we are red-blooded males. We get to see Jamie Lee Curtis in a bikini in this one, too. I mean, that, that doesn't hurt. That is, yeah, but at the same time, I think maybe that's another reason why audiences turned on it, because they felt manipulated. You know, that is, the, the Jamie Lee Curtis card, like the Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, showing skin card, that has to be played very carefully. It's almost like, like the cancer card. You know, this movie plays the cancer card as well. And while it works with the family stone here, not so much because you at some point you just feel like they're trying to. You can't to play hard. too many cards. Yeah, you have to be careful with the cards you play. And if you're going to have Jamie Lee Curtis in the bikini uh, tanning, and then maybe 20 minutes later, you're going to have some old neighbor finding out that her cancer has returned, that doesn't, that movie, it's not going to do well because that kind of stuff doesn't mash well together. So uh, tropes that would work well for their own individual films, but just but it's together, too much. Nope, nope. So uh, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that Chris Columbus decided to just take the reins and direct, direct again after that. He's like, I'm not gonna let anybody else ruin my my scripts from here on. He didn't even allow a full year to go by. He he allowed exactly 364 days because it was November 23rd of 2005 that brought us to our last Chris Columbus Christmas movie. One that was honestly too much for me to bear. This was uh, Rent, which um, was directed by Chris Columbus. It was based on, obviously, Rent Musical by Jonathan Larson, uh, produced by Bob De Niro. And we talked about that earlier. <clears throat> Budget of $40 million with a box office of $31.7 million. It seems like, um, you know, 
people not understanding Christmas with the Cranks kind of came back to bite this one in the ass. But this stood at 46%. And as I told you earlier today, Julio, um, with the exception of Christmas with the Cranks, we kind of watched these on our own time. And I tried to watch Rent, and it was just too much of an emotional roller coaster. It, it hits more than one nerve. I think that it's just, I mean, I had to pause several times, and I've already seen it. I, yeah, it was- and I couldn't even make it through. I, I got to light my candle, and it was just one of those things like I was. I knew I was in for a world of heartache, so I couldn't continue. Well, yeah, I mean, it's. It, and I will give this. I mean, we've kind of trashed the studio with Christmas with the, trank, with the Cranks, where they, they just went with the safe choices mm-hmm. and uh, walked away from a very interesting movie that Chris Columbus was trying to make. Here, it's the opposite. They take a musical and they give it to the person that you didn't expect because. You wouldn't expect the guy that directed Home Alone 1 and 2 and Harry Potter, whatever, to take on a on a movie that has to do with uh, people that have AIDS and people that are drug addicts and people just live in the slums and they're homeless and all that stuff. That's like, as great a filmmaker as Chris Columbus is, you don't think of him when you think yeah. of that movie. And yet the studio took a chance and decided to just give him the power to, to bring this to the screen. And I think he does a great job. He he really, it's really hard to watch because it's a hard story to tell. You know, like half the cast is doomed to be dead at some point, you know, no matter how good things are for them at the time. And not a lot of it is good. Uh, you, have, uh, you have people that are sick. You have people that are broke. Uh, they're having relationship problems. And uh, I think that... I think the musical is okay on stage, mm-hmm. but the movie really succeeds at making you feel for the characters because Columbus takes advantage of, of the fact that it's a movie. So whereas on stage, you're stuck in one place the entire time. Columbus here really like opens it up and gives you all of New Pops York around. again. Yeah. And it's Christmas time again. So, you know, it's by now he's in his domain. He He knows how to shoot Christmas. Certainly Christmas in New York. It's just like what he does. So it, it's a. At this point, he's had twenty years in the genre, so he, he's he's gotten it down. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that he got the job. You know, it was it's a surprising uh, choice once you know because of material, but then once you realize that they were going to go with that kind of uh, unexpected director, then yeah, Chris Columbus, why not? He's he's done Christmas movies before. He's done Christmas movies in New York before. He can get great performances from people. He, you know, and he clearly. He's not afraid of, of taking chances. He does this thing in this movie where he he takes songs and removes the music and just lets the actors speak the lyrics as if it was normal dialogue. That is powerful. That is a statement. That is telling you this is not the musical you, you thought you were going to watch. You, this is me, Chris Columbus, telling you the story in a movie way. It's kind of like Home Alone. It's like you, you came here thinking for like hijinks, but I'm actually going to have this little child trying to murder these grown men. Right, right. But it's also, I think, because he's older and he's been in the business for so long and he's been burned so many times. I mean, that again, that 5% from Christmas of the Cranks has so messed with him. <laughs> you know? And, and so I think that this is, this is clearly Columbus at his darkest. Mm-hmm. He He really takes away the filters and he really gives you I think that's one of the reasons why he took away some of the music because he really wanted the punches to land that's why you couldn't finish the movie yeah he stripped it bare like too much so I think you're right like the punch from Christmas of the Cranks rang true so he took this story that was already pretty dark and just made it even darker yeah he's uh 
he makes a lot of like really cool choices. I mean, uh, I, I told you right before we started recording that he he kept the original cast from Broadway except for uh, one cast member that gets replaced by uh, Rosario Dawson. But that's that's bold, you know, because these guys in the movie, I mean, by the time that he shoots the movie, it looks like they're in their 40s. And mm-hmm. in the show, originally, they're like early 20s, I think. Yeah. So that is that is a big deal. And he just went with it because he knew that he had to trust the talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's, it, it's really impressive i think uh, just the fact that one that hollywood trusted him with this and that he didn't disappoint because he just started swinging you know for defenses when he started shooting it and also that he's had this sustained 20 plus year period of making successful christmas movies right it it just i mean he started off on a bit of a rocky path but like he really came into his own yeah i think it really in a way it's kind of like a payoff because this is so far, this was his last big Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if he doesn't make any more because I think his ultimate statement is here. You know, a, a bunch of uh, starving, sick artists in New York on Christmas. Well, it's it, the thing, like Christmas with the Cranks. He thought that was to be his Christmas masterpiece, and he made it, and it was resented. So he was like, "Well, fuck you! you all you want out of these movies is these sad sack stories." These people dying with like real life issues, so I'm going to give it to you. And, and he does in a good way. And then, like you said earlier, proverbially just dropped the mic after he made this. Yeah. After that, he's like, later, I have uh, Percy Jackson and Beth Cooper to to shoot. And in 10 years, fucking pixels. Well, yeah. that's. I think that when you get to be Chris Columbus, like at this point in his career, he can just do whatever he wants. And it'll be gold. And it's like... This podcast is a testament of how awesome Josh Gad is. So, of course, <laughs> you get to 2015, you're going to make a movie with Josh Gad Absolutely. and Adam Sandler. That's just like – it's it's a running thing. It's almost like he was listening to our podcast and figure out what his next project was going to be. It's like, oh, Adam Sandler, He figured Josh out Gad. all roads go to Josh Gad. Yep. yep. Death it, to need daddy. It's a very satisfying career. I, I cannot imagine what he would do if he did another Christmas movie, but I also can't imagine – Anybody, and if you're not doing this, you should watching a Chris Columbus movie on Christmas every year because mm-hmm. I think it should be a tradition. He has so many. We haven't even touched on the ones that you know are kind of about Christmas. You you told me stepmom, uh, you know, has a Christmas theme, and uh, my girlfriend was like angry at me because we were not going to talk about the Chris the Harry Potter movies, which have like Christmas moments because you know you. I've never seen a single Harry Potter movie. Uh, you're missing out when it comes to Harry uh, the Harry Potter as seen by Chris Columbus. Ah. Which, you know, after watching all these movies, I think you probably can tell that. You're missing out as it comes to stepmom as, stepmom as seen by Christopher Columbus. I completely believe you. <laughs> so are we ready to real talk about Chris Columbus's Christmas Oh, oh let, let's do some real talk and let the hate flow. Hold on. Chris Columbus's Christmas Crusade. There we go. CCCC. <laughs> Time for real talk. All right. I'm coming in! I'm gonna kill that kid! Marth! Harry? Why the hell did you take your shoes off? Why the hell are you dressed like a chicken? All right, once again, happy holidays from us here at The Contrarians, back for some real talk as it pertains to one Chris Columbus and his selective Christmas filmography that we've gone over here. Um, I guess, start with a disclaimer, 
I kind of hate this Chris. I hate Chris Columbus. I mean, kind of. I enjoy some of his movies, but for the most part, you say Chris Columbus, and I have a negative reaction. Hate's a strong word. A lot of Native Americans hate Christopher Columbus too. <laughs> uh, yeah. Are we I back guess, on the filmmaker or the discoverer of America? I'm I'm indifferent to the discoverer of America. I I kind of hate not the filmmaker, but his filmmaking. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure he's a great guy. I, I heard the kids from Harry Potter love him. He was a joy to work with. He was good with the kids. And he certainly knows how to make movies that make money, which explains yeah. why he's still making movies. Uh, but They come and go. Um, there's films on this that pretty much encapsulate what's good about him. And there's some that we watch that show everything that is overwhelmingly <laughs> negative about him. Uh, Gremlins is great, though. I, I didn't realize how long it's. It literally had been at least twenty years since I had seen that movie. And... Uh, I don't know if it's been that long, but it's been a long time since I'd seen it. I, uh, but when I used to watch it, I would watch it all the time. Like I recorded Gremlins from TV. Like one time they was playing. Like I saw it in theaters. This is how old I am. I saw it in theaters, and then uh, didn't see it again until it played on TV years later. And I recorded it, and then I would play that over and over. Gremlins two, I bought on VHS. And uh, uh, was blown away. So it was Gremlins 2 we're talking about that we both played a lot on NES? Yes. Yeah, yeah the video game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know that there's a Gremlins game at all, ever. But mm. I, I wish there was because there's, I mean. It, it's pretty perfect for what it is. And I would like to play the racist neighbor on a, on a video yeah. game with his snowplow. And did you know that the Gremlins movie was um, some uh, African-American circles claimed it to be like a racist interpretation of how white people view black people like the gremlins were supposed to be black people oh come on yeah i mean i'm all about just like it's fun to read between the lines but here i don't see how you get to that yeah i like gremlins i watching it this time like remember i texted you halfway through and i was like man this movie is great and then Shortly after, it was not that great. It's not bad, but I did feel that shift that I referred to uh, in, the, in the first half of the podcast uh, where it goes from being like kind of like a, a, an awesome kind of like crazy movie that I didn't know where it was going to go to just becoming an all-out like creature horror movie where it's yeah. just like, oh, the gremlins are taking the town down. And, it's and then just... they figure out like in the end like it's big weak point. Yeah, and then and then it's over. So It does turn into a creature movie as they figure out its shortcomings and they're able to capitalize on like all of them at one time at the end. Right, but it's also – it becomes just less interesting. And the things that uh, kind of lost my attention this time are the things that I loved when I was a kid. You know, there's that big uh, – once the gremlins have taken over the town, there's this really long sequence where they're like at the bar where Phoebe Cates work works and mm-hmm. it's just like a series of uh, of just gags you know it's yeah. like oh this is the gremlin that exposes himself and there's a gremlin that's like smoking three cigarettes at once and there's a gremlin that's like playing the piano or like sitting at the table while another one's like doing puppet things it, it's just like it wasn't that funny anymore. it's a movie that does a really good job of disguising itself making it seem as though it's never been done before when in actuality it like has it's clearly... just like a horror you know creature movie but like i was saying Gizmo's so fucking adorable. Like, <laughs> it, 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 he kind of got on my nerves now. Like, he, what? It, yeah, it was. I mean, not in a bad, not terribly, but Gizmo and Barney the dog, like their relationships, yeah, great. As we good. talked about, Corey Feldman, nineteen eighty four. This would have been. No, this was yeah. So this would have been around the time of Friday the Thirteenth Part Four. Where... He had to go shoot Friday the Thirteenth. That's why he couldn't like have. Another significant. And you said you've never scene. seen it. Like uh, he 
he becomes Jason at the end, right? Kind of, yeah. Semantics. His character has to be bald (laughs) at the end, so he wears this incredible bald cap that's like horribly, horribly covered up. Um, Yeah, it's it's a movie that has its own cult following and understandably so it's, I, I mean i would show it to someone that's i, I really like it you it know? has the 12 monkeys tilt i noticed watching the 12 monkeys tilt where the like, camera is just slightly always oh. at a tilt <laughs> um no 12 monkey obviously 12 monkeys is a better movie than this but uh it's yeah. still really good i Phoebe just kate's man she is great. I mean, okay. Let's... I wish she had stuck around. <laughs> she should have been made... her and Wild Things, man. <laughs> she she made the movie. I mean, it's still like at least ten years ago, probably longer than that. Uh, it's called The Anniversary Party, which was like the, that's how I found out because obviously there's a big gap in my like between the movies I watched when I was a kid and then the movies I watched as a teenager and, and later on. So it's like Phoebe Cates was not in my radar. You know, like Phoebe Cates is like from Gremlins, which I was when I was like I watched when I was a kid, and then just the anniversary party is a movie made by I don't remember who the actors are, but they, if I remember correctly, they just basically back when digital was starting to become popular, they just grabbed the digital camera and shot this movie with their actor friends, and John C. Riley is in it, Kevin Klein is it is in it. Phoebe Cates is in it. You said she married Kevin Klein. Right? Yeah, she married Kevin Klein. Way to go, Kevin. Good for you, Kevin Klein. Uh, but anyway, like, I remember after watching the movie, which is, like, the movie's just okay. Uh, I don't even remember what Phoebe Cates plays. I think she plays, telling me enough. Yeah, I remember now. Uh, she plays an actress that stopped acting because she wanted to focus on her family. And so when I was looking online about the movie, I was doing just, like, looking for trivia and stuff. I found out that, oh, yeah, her character is inspired by herself because she retired from acting to focus on her family. And... uh I mean that's good. I hope she's happy, but it she's besides like the fact that she's really attractive, she was also like she's really good. Yeah. So I it would have been cool to just have her around. The scene of her talking about her dad's death is still like for as kind of over the top as this movie is, it still comes like kind of out of nowhere and it's like it, it works fairly strange. It works because of her delivery i think a lesser actress would have had wouldn't have made it work and even then yeah i I know what you mean because it's been so crazy and by now we've seen we've we're past the scene in the bar with the gremlins where it's just like so wacky funny that to suddenly have her they literally they escape the bar they hide out into this other place and then she just launches into this story and so if you take the story the monologue on its own it's amazing when you put it in the context of the movie it's a little weird i would really like to commission for january jones to read that scene <laughs> just to see how differently it could play you're a hater because you haven't watched Mad Men. i've i've seen enough of january jones to know yeah i can do her uh exposition from x-men first class that's not her 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 highest uh point in her career <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, I like Gremlins. I I think eighty four is probably fair. Uh, you know, if I were to give her like a, a give it a star, I would be like, was this it, like it was Chris Columbus's beginning? Was this like the first big stamp he put? Uh, no, maybe he did. He did. He wrote Goonies and Young Sherlock after like in eighty five, eighty four. What well, was Goonies the financial success? I honestly don't know. Was it like the financial success that Gremlins was? I have no idea. I'm sure it was. Good enough to like. Because I, I thought Goonies is one of those that's kind of like since become. Oh, like it was a flop and then became a cult. Not necessarily a flop, or? but like, yeah. It shows the research we did here. But uh, <laughs> Gremlins did like 
have a pretty massive return for its pretty modest budget. Which is weird that it took so long for them to make the sequel. Because the sequel doesn't come out until, what, early 90s, right? Gremlins 2 is like 90-something. Yeah. You can tell, like, they've old aged. Like, the racist neighbor, like, he's, like, really old yeah. in the second and one. And Hulk Hogan's in it. Uh, was, was Hogan around in 1984? I don't know. Uh, that's actually the year Hulkamania began. So, uh, no, okay, in 1985 well, was the year of the first WrestleMania. Now I know. Yeah, there you go. Live and learn. Um, teaching you here on the <laughs> Contrarians. So uh, <laughs> along the road here in Christmas with Chris Columbus, we'll uh, we'll tackle this next as a you know we'll we'll lump these together: Home Alone and Home Alone Two. Fifty four percent is pretty shocking, considering like Home Alone is one of the more beloved movies of my lifetime i think that it's it's grown in, into becoming kind of a guilty pleasure so it really didn't surprise me that much but it's also one of those rotten tomatoes wasn't around when that came out so right. i think the people actually, that actually took the time to upload their reviews or you, you're absolutely right because i looked at the uh, i pulled it up on online and because i was just curious to see like who had liked it and who hadn't and there weren't that many reviews so yeah, and it's one of those things. It's like it's a wonderful life we did last year. I think it was like ninety four percent. I think a lot of people took the time to actually like upload their reviews and everything because they care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nobody really cares about. But mind you, none of these movies that we're discussing are "It's a Wonderful Life." Much like none of these movies we're discussing are "The Family Stone." I so agree. if you want the real Christmas reviews, except for Rent, but we'll get to that. Go back to uh, uh, this time last year on the Contrarians, and yes, did had... you notice how often uh, "It's a Wonderful Life" plays in the background on Christmas movies? Because oh I, yeah, I, I know in one of the Home Alones, if not both of them, it's playing on the TV at some point. That's a Chris it, Columbus trope, by the way. Really, like yeah. the the he, I guess he really likes the wonderful. Makes sense because he loves Christmas. Yeah. So, um, yeah, was it playing? No, not in Christmas with the Cranks. Uh, but I guess Whew, we'll get to Christmas it, with the Cranks. <laughs> Um, Home Alone, Home Alone 2 are, for all intents and purposes, the same movie, just one had a bigger budget so they could do it in New York City. Well, the, the, I mean, I, I don't know. I think the second one is like a pretty shameless cash grab. The, there is no... I know you like it, and, and I used to like it a lot more. Like, back then when I watched them... See, shameless cash grab, like... Dude, totally. There is no way around I know, that. but like, there's... There's enough genuine effort in it. Okay, so like no, there Monsters is no. <laughs> University is a movie that I would consider a shameless cash grab. Like that's... And you would not consider Home Alone 2 a shameless cash grab? It's so it's, – it's not just transparent, but it's like offensively transparent. <laughs> it's a, I guess. I don't know. I just I, – like I've legit – You know, I would be fine with it being a shameless offensive cash grab if it was better than the first movie or at least as good as the first movie, but it isn't. I guess I'm just so blinded by Daniel Stern's comedic <laughs> ability. Even Daniel Stern, like they, they, I, I don't think he's as funny. He's great, but he's not as funny as he was in the first movie. And it really, I think the second movie suffers from what we were talking about in the first half, where everything is bigger. Yeah, and and you just they're they were already pretty close to being cartoons. They were already cartoons in the first movie, and that here they're just so over the top. And Daniel Stern more so because he's supposed to be the wacky one. Like Joe Pesci gets by by being the silent, like more serious uh, of the of the two. But Daniel Stern gets some moments where you're like. How does this make sense on any level? It is so fucking stupid when he gets electrocuted and becomes a skeleton with an afro. It's just... Yeah. There is a moment uh, later on, like after that, where he shouldn't be even like, okay, I'm not, I want to be clear. I do not 
begrudge the lack of logic in, in Home Alone 2. I mean, I'm perfectly cool with him being electrocuted and hit by three bricks and all this stuff and still, you know, just be walking around a minute later. But but there are some things like little things like the fact that after all that stuff that happens, it, he just like there's a moment where uh, Kevin is going to run up the stairs and he stops and he looks at them and he's like, are you guys ready to give up yet? And then Daniel Stern puts his his fist on his waist and just says, never. And it's just so hammy and over the top and i'm like dude you did not give a shit at this point yeah uh, <laughs> i can take that and like keep in mind when i do watch these movies i watch them side by side so a lot of it bleeds together right and uh, that's but obviously things from one stick out and i talk about daniel stern's comedic ability like him the paint cans to the head in the first one are great and him stepping on the nail me and my sister always like quote him like trying to outsmart kevin in the first one that i'll get him like him pretending like he's going up the <laughs> right. stairs um it's funny i mean but you, you he, can't deny that it's funny because i i was watching both of them and i was honestly expecting to have a much lesser fun time than i ended up yeah. having i was laughing a lot and Catherine o'hara i don't know if we've ever talked about this on the contrarians she and diane weist are like my favorite actresses ever i i knew about Catherine o'hara i didn't know that you had like a diane weist dude i need to get you some woody allen movies because yeah. you you would I, get a love Catherine o'hara diane weist and obviously my girl meryl streep are like my favorite actresses ever but um the first home alone like the reason it will like you can see that Home Alone Two wasn't in the same ballpark is because nothing in Home Alone Two comes anywhere near as close to genuine as just the one scene with Catherine O'Hara and John Candy in the first Home Alone. Uh, I agree a hundred percent, but I will say the moment to me that makes Home Alone one that I, I was impressed by how like I mean I didn't tear up, but it really hit me is when she's still at the airport trying to get back and she's offering all this money to this one older lady yeah. and uh and she almost has her and then the husband's like no no no, we need to go we need to go and then she says i think that the line is she says i'm desperate yeah and that makes him like so in her delivery of that line in this movie that's like really stupid i mean it's great but it's just kind of like silly and everything yeah. and then you really felt her pain like she really uh she really plays it you know straight yeah. she, which that doesn't happen in the second one because it's almost impossible you yeah know, you, the second you, one is like it, and i'm defending it but it is just like a live action cartoon right the, you start you're starting from a, a disadvantage because you have to buy into them leaving him again mm -hmm. and i'll give him this like both times the the circumstances like the chain of events that lead to him being left alone is really well constructed Especially in the second one, because you have to justify it a second time. Yeah. You know, the first time it happens because there was like the neighbor is like looking into the van, so they count him as Kevin. Remember? Yeah. And then in the in the second one, he makes it all the way to the airport, but because he has the camera or the the recorder, the talk boy, right? The talk boy that doesn't have the batteries, and he's trying to get dad's batteries, and so and then he ends up following a guy that looks like his dad, but it's not his dad, and then. The John Hurd who did not become an Academy Award <laughs> exactly. winner. That guy, that guy did become an Academy Award winner. The guy that plays not John Hurd, John Hurd in that movie. Uh, but then, and then he runs into the the lady that's at the at the gate, and so all the the gate passes, the boarding passes, they just fly and fall on the floor. So now there's no way for her to check his boarding pass to make sure that. 
to realize that he's not supposed to be in that flight. Dude, John Hughes thinks of everything, man. Don't worry about it. it. That was, I mean, that is a great, like, he, he thought all that through. But yeah. then, you know, he gets to New York and then it's just like all credibility is out the window. Home Alone 2 also has, um, for anyone who's ever seen it, there is one particular shot in it that even at the time was really incredible. And now it's kind of like weird is it the uh, twin towers yeah oh it is yeah there's Holy a shit. shot where uh macaulay culkin um it starts with him looking like through the scope finders you put a quarter in, you can look through and he's on the roof of one of the trade towers and it's like a helicopter shot that like slowly comes out and it's him on like the roof of the world trade center and then like the other one becomes apparent in the background dude it's- i wonder if they edited it out of the version i saw because i just I recorded it from mm-hmm. cable uh, a couple weeks ago, and I finally watched it a couple days ago. And it's possible because I, I, it, like, I remember watching the Blu-ray. It's like a 30-second shot that ends, like his so, montage. I, I was going to ask you earlier, and now I have to ask you. So you own Home Alone 2 on Blu-ray? You were like a true fan. Uh, my sister does oh. because listeners, I live in a house with my sister. and <laughs> yeah. Suddenly all this yeah. personal information spills out. Uh, no, I bought it for her for Christmas because she loves uh, the first two Home Alone movies. And on Blu-ray, you can get it for like three bucks this time right. of year. So. Um, but yeah, Daniel Stern's great. But yeah, I'm, Roger Ebert's review of it's fucking hilarious where he talks about like actually interviewing like uh, – forensic scientist asking like what a brick to the head would do and it was like <laughs> at best brain damage at worst death and um yeah it's insane i remember as a kid i remember thinking the second one was better because there was like the sequence of kevin versus the robbers well because they knew what they could do like i was saying the first one wasn't expected to be a hit and of course with the way fucking movies are that's how it always works out it's like this one that you put like minimal effort into becomes huge and the first one though they're like there's so much genuine goodwill in it not to say that it's not in the second because everyone in it kind of does give an effort and like I was saying mm, I mean yes but uh. <laughs> well, that doesn't change like the way it's written doesn't change the effort that's given by the performers Um, I mean Yes, but and we'll get to this more even on our next movie. But it's like they have to have known they were making it as they were making. They have to have known this is just not as good as the first one. And well, that's what's weird about it because, like I was saying, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern both thought the first one was shit, (laughs) and so like they were trying to be ridiculous in it. And yeah, I mean the first one is not perfect. Let me, because uh, I think I, I I did mention that. I mean I watched it and I laughed. Again, I hadn't seen it forever, and it was you. You get like when the first one's over, you do feel good about yourself. Whereas yes, the second the, one, you're just like, yeah, yeah. The reunion, the, the eventual reunion between Kevin and his mom is really good and really powerful in the first one. I think it's because he even like does that thing where he turns and it takes him. He makes her wait for it. You know, yeah. he doesn't smile right away. Like, he looks at her, and she's like, I'm so sorry. And then he slowly smiles. It, it's just like, it's very it's very good. But And also, the first one, the ending's so perfect. The, Kevin, what did you do to my room? Right. Uh, but there is this thing, and maybe uh, I, I just... It's kind of like with Gizmo. Like, the Kevin cuteness, sometimes it was just... It was just too much. It was just too grating. Well, fortunately for Gizmo, he was a uh, animatronic created by the studio, whereas Macaulay Culkin went through heroin addiction and uh, many problems. Uh, he's doing okay now, I heard. Yeah. Well, uh, he got to bang Mila Kunis for a while, so 
he is better than you or I will ever be. <laughs> He's achieved much more. He has more money, better life experiences. Everybody knows him. Uh, yeah. The, the second one, though, the, here's the biggest, my biggest point of contention with the second one is the pigeon lady. And when we're talking about like shameless, like replication or augmentation of the what what was successful on the first one, the pigeon lady obviously is the the successor to the creepy old man. You know, in the first one you have the old man with the shovel that he's afraid of, and then they bond at the church, and he learns from something. He gives he dispenses some like childlike wisdom to the man, mm-hmm. and then the man in turn inspires him to like fight for his house. The exact same thing happens in the second one. With the pigeon lady, he's afraid of her, and then he befriends her, and they have a conversation, and Kevin kind of tells her, hey, you should stop being homeless, and she says, hey, you should fight for, you know, whatever. And uh, that'll be fine, except that the scene is, it feels ten times as long, and it maybe it's like three times as long at least. It's And because you already played those emotional beats in the first one, it just... It pissed me off so much, man. <laughs> I mean, I remember as a kid being bored by it. And this time, because I watched them back to back, it just had me shaking my head at just how you're just doing the exact same thing. And it's funny when it's comedy, you know, when it's when when it's just like the exact same jokes, yeah. the exact same setup of like, oh, well, it's the same two robbers going after him in a house or is the family leaving him alone, you know. That's okay because it's it's a joke. But when you're using like the the dramatic heart of it it's the exact same that just it's annoying it's kind of you could make a case of um similar to the hangover 2 yeah yeah kind of i actually looked up the hangover 2 to see how badly it hurt them that it was a uh, kind of like a remake of the original and well okay there's a little bit of difference between home alone 1 and home alone 2 whereas hangover 2 is the exact same movie um I, I I think I put them in the same category. Like the differences are, I mean, they're whatever differences are between. You change the clothing on the people involved. The setting, the clothing, extra characters. You know, you have like okay. the Home Alone Two had nowhere near as much of a mean spirit as Hangover Two did. Uh, yes, but I probably. As an adult, I probably laughed more with Hangover Two than Home Alone Two. Well, boo. <laughs> I, uh, our friend Eddie Strait would agree with me that Hangover 2 has one of the best, most awesome sequences. Regardless of what you think of the movie in general, the scene where uh, where uh, Zach Galifianakis has like this flashback where he sees all oh, of them as a kid. The, as yeah. little kids. Yeah. Hangover 2 also, um, myself, a friend of mine, Michael Benedict, and uh, my friend Reed, like... The only people I know that laughed, but absolutely the funniest part of the movie was the ending where they're showing the pictures and they recreated the Vietnam <laughs> picture with Ken Hong. Somebody had spoiled that for me. Which, of course, is me. like the lightning rod of like controversy for that movie. Yeah, uh, somebody has spoiled that for me, so I knew what it was that it was coming when it. So, I mean, it was still it, it still made me laugh. Yeah. Um, still, I I would say it's better than Hangover Three, going a little off rails because it has nothing to do with Chris Columbus, but. Did you like it better than Hangover 3? Hangover 2? Yeah. No, Hangover 3 is great. No, it's not, man. What are you talking about? I really like Hangover 3. Hangover 3 felt uh, so, like, I want to say lifeless. No, well, Hangover 3, okay, so Hangover 3 is one of two things. It was a lazy, just whatever, or it was a very mean-spirited thing. Like, I've never been able to figure out what it is. I I don't think it's either. I think that... It it was, like, 
to me, it was Todd Phillips being like, all right, fuck you. You guys hated me making the same movie, so I'm going to make the exact opposite of what you think I'm going to make. Yeah, but it doesn't do either. Because to me, Hangover 3 would have been amazing if they did the exact same thing a third time. <laughs> you know? Then they'd yeah. be like, or if they'd done something like completely different but really good you yeah. know like oh now it's bradley cooper that's missing or or now they just they're like traveling well, bradley all over cooper the world. was too busy looking annoyed being in the movie to begin with he does yeah. and that, that kind of takes the fun out of it you know there's there's one line one single line in hangover th- uh, three that makes me laugh and that is when john goodman says something like he shoots like you know the other doug then he says i'm killing dougs I'm, today i'm killing dougs today that made me laugh that's the only time i, I laughed the, out loud. the scenes with zach and that are really good though the um the one where he is talking to carlos and he realizes like what a fuck up he's become yeah yeah that's like a genuinely good moment but, th- but that's how i know that it's not that they were being lazy because they really they were i think they were trying to give zach galifianakis uh, an arc which you know it's almost non-existent in the other two movies. So, so there is some effort. I just think it's like a huge misfire. You know, I think that they completely. Uh, uh, I think under the right circumstances, it could have been really good. It's just like what they were left with after the second one was so desolate that it was just kind of like, well, we're going to do the best we can. I think. I mean, yeah, as a reaction to the second one, it makes a lot more sense. But I also think they completely miscalculated when it come when it came to judging how much people at least people like me appreciate the character of Chang. Like I'm I'm done with that guy. Like you know, like I, is it is that his name in the in the hangover? Yeah. Or am I okay. What's no, his name? Chang, in, uh, Chang is in community. Chow is in Chow and, yeah. and okay. Like Chow, Ken, Ken Yong plays only the most stereotypical <laughs> of characters. Uh yeah, he's uh I didn't need to see him again, and the third movie is more about him than all the other two, so that was also annoying, you know. And but the ending's so perfect when when fucking when Zach goes to give him the Stu high five boobs. and then he just pulls away. Oh, like, I don't remember. I I, I don't know. I, oh god, I forgot about the post credit scene. Yeah, fuck. What am I talking about? Three <laughs> three is okay. No, three has moments that are good, but yeah. Um, well, let's get back to Chris Columbus, yeah, who had nothing to do with the Hangover movies, as far as we know, but did make a sequel that was pretty much a carbon copy of the first one, mm-hmm. and then added like a lot more budget to it and a lot of. But as I said, there's more goodwill in Home Alone two than there is in Hangover two. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> I right. I mean, I think that. On the, on the story level. On the level, basis of it being a Christmas movie alone. Chris Columbus I, I, isn't the kind of guy that would manipulate his audience at all. Never. No. Yeah. But I'm saying, okay, in the sense that it's a story about a mom reuniting with his kid versus a story about, like, a bunch of, like, dudes. Yeah, that like, are... literally the reason I say this is because Catherine O'Hara's performance in Home Alone 2 is more genuine than anyone's performance in Hangover 2. And even so, Home Alone 2, I think shortchanges her because on one hand, she's just basically going through the yeah, same arc she did in the first stupid. one. It's, right. Yeah, it's like... It, she would, a real mother, ever faced with that fucking horrifying scenario, would never let that fucking child leave her side ever again. Yeah, and and it's and the, and the thing is, in the first one, you're with her a lot more. You know, like she has that journey where she's like trying to get people to sell her tickets in the airport, and then she she's in the in the truck with uh, John Candy. Yeah, and the so second one, she doesn't get that. Yeah, and but that's just the thing. Like she's gone through all that, so she would never fucking. Yeah. Yeah, she would like in real life 
fucking Kevin would grow up to be really fucking unhealthy and treat women like shit because his mom would be telling him, you're great. I love you. You're the best. Don't worry. Nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. Whatever you want to do, that's perfect. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I, I, I understand why they leave her out of the second movie for the most part. Although it does have like Chris Columbus has like a tendency to just be really cheesy. I can't believe it took us this long to like mention it. But there is like some, you know, great a cheese in the first movie and certainly in the second movie. Uh, there's that scene in the second movie where Catherine O'Hara and him like are listening to the same Christmas song or something. I don't remember. But it's like they're both looking out the window and that's and supposed to. Yeah. Mean that oh well you know they're apart but they're together and it's like I don't need that just just get to the pratfalls get to Tim Curry thinking that man you you want to talk about Lacey like Home Alone two recycling the joke about him playing the movie on TV and people thinking that is true I don't I don't mind that it's unrealistic as hell I I, I you See, know that's but... the thing that's what's that. It doesn't bother me because when I think of that, I'm just going to think of the first one. <laughs> That's what like, makes it so good because I just think of Daniel Stern. I've heard that name. Snakes. <laughs> and then jumping into the snow. Well, in the second one, he has like that thing where – because it's a different clip or a different movie. but where uh... Both of which you know, are fictional films. They were both – Oh, he made those movies? Like... Yeah. Like they um... – yeah, the filthy angels and filthier angels are like the names. But yeah, those are both fictional. Oh, I did not. That's that's great. Okay, kudos to them for doing that. But uh, no, the second one, there's a moment where you know he's doing it to Tim Curry, and it's Tim Curry, Rob Schneider, the lady, and some older guy, the security guy, and uh, and he's just implying like the dialogue implies that Tim Curry's been like making out with like the guy's brother yeah. and like with a bunch of other people. <laughs> he starts naming the people that that Tim Curry's been hooking up with, and the last name is like Stu or something. And then you look at the at the guard's name tag, and it says Stu, and it cuts to his face, and it's like that's a lie. <laughs> Uh, so I mean I laugh but at the same time it's like come on man let's just do something else well um, are we ready to like stop having fun engaging conversations because we can go to fucking 12 years later to this next one that the one we actually watched together so when we did this we planned this out and uh, Julio and I both checked out all these movies on our own time but we actually watched this next one together <laughs> it was Christmas with the Cranks and I fucking hate you for making me like sit down and watch this movie are you happy you though? insisted this be the one that we sit down and watch together <laughs> well what would have happened if you had to watch it alone i mean i wouldn't you... have right so so that that makes sense this is the worst movie we've watched for this podcast <laughs> and this isn't a podcast where we've watched paul blart yes and paul blart like at least was one of those movies we could like turn and joke to each other. But like, and I was telling you, you have to try to make a Christmas movie bad because there's so many like tropes and easy things you can get by by making a Christmas movie to make it like at least like pleasant and presentable. This was just awful. Five percent is too high. <laughs> oh wait, 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 before we move on, okay. So no, uh, this we'll, is we'll Christmas wait. with the cranks, by the way. Well, yes. No, I was gonna say let's do the rating for the others. We'll do the ratings at the very end mm. for all the movies. So yeah, let's let's dive into Christmas with the cranks, which was a movie. This is the second time I've seen it in my life. Whereas like Gremlins, Home Alone One, and Home Alone Two, I rewatched constantly when I was a kid. Uh, Christmas with the cranks, I screened uh, as part of my job. Uh, you know, I, I got paid to watch it, and like I told you, we were watching it. I did not get paid enough to watch this. <laughs> it was it, it's pretty terrible. And this is your first time watching it, obviously. Yeah, and it's just like, the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I 
it's based on a John Grisham book, and like we were wondering, we're watching it. Yeah, it, should we read the book to see if the book is this bad? Because the movie is pretty terrible. And here we go back to when you know we're talking about Home Alone Two. It's like the people involved in this movie they have to have known that it was really bad. There yeah. is no way that you are part of this movie, and um, you know if you are on the main characters, you have Jamie Lee Curtis, someone who starred in the second greatest movie ever made. Which was that? Halloween. Okay. And, of course, at that time, she had no idea of knowing how big that would be. But a seasoned actress. Right. That's the thing. Everybody here has careers, so they've done good movies. They, they, they You'd think that they know what a good movie is. is like, I mean, okay, Tim Allen, I mean, he seems to be pretty but like, even carefree he was about the projects. He's a good Christmas movie. Right. There's, and he's been in three of the most celebrated movies ever. Right. But... There is something here that just fundamentally doesn't work, and it's not the concept because I like the idea, the old, the, the very basic idea of this couple figures out that they spend all this money on Christmas. Okay, forget about the fact that it's insane that they spend that much money on Christmas. Sixty-four hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, a family of three people. Sixty-four hundred dollars on Christmas. But but you know if you're using it as as kind of a if this company is gonna going to really criticize the fact that wow, look at all the money we spend on Christmas, okay, you know, it's so for them to decide that they're not gonna do Christmas and instead they're gonna use half of that money to go on a vacation, and that and that that becomes that makes them pariahs in their community. Yeah, and like they're like whitewashed neighborhood hates them. Right, so there's something to the that. Fucking last twenty minutes of the movie abandons everything the first hour built. Right, but let's not. I mean, it's not even like the movie gets bad in the last twenty minutes. I mean, the last twenty minutes kind of betray their. their oh no, the their, movie's terrible up until then. But it's like at least if they had finished off and actually gone on the cruise, the movie would have completed its plot. Right, you're like, okay, they took that stance. Yeah, yeah, uh, but no, the because really, what should have happened in a braver movie is that. Not only do they go on the on the cruise, but everybody else in the neighborhood realizes they're spending a lot of money on something that you know maybe they shouldn't. Uh, but but instead, yeah, they they double cross the original intent of the movie. But that's just not a problem because the problem is just that it's not funny. Mm-hmm. It's like aggressively not funny. <laughs> you and I didn't laugh like once. Not like a single time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was laughing every time that you just lost your shit. <laughs> every time I saw you like covering your face or just like sighing, like exasperated, that that would make me laugh. But, uh, okay, forget Tim Allen. Because Tim Allen has been like in so many bad movies that even though he can be a good performer, I think that he just, you know, there's something... The way that he chooses his projects are it's maybe not the best, but uh, everybody else, I mean, I don't know that it, it just goes back to like you have to have known that you were making a bad Christmas movie, yeah, and maybe that's fine. I mean, because everybody, you know, it's like if they need you said Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern did the first Home Alone for just for the paycheck, and so if people like you know they just did this one for the paycheck, but. I guess it goes back to like, okay, Chris Columbus, why did you write this? <laughs> yeah, for real. You know, and John Grisham, if you're, I mean, I guess he has no control. I mean, once he sells the right, they can do whatever they want. And then your friend Joe Roth, which uh, did Freedom Land. Freedom it, Land. Whew. I don't remember hating Freedom Land. Uh, I, I remember being underwhelmed. Pretty but... bad. Like most things with Julianne Moore, it's significantly <laughs> underwhelming. But yeah, I mean, this movie is just. Bad from beginning to end. There is the the comic timing that these performers have displayed in countless other movies is not there. Mm-hmm. The the script obviously doesn't hurt or doesn't help them at all. There's just so many bad jokes about. 
it's I guess with such an interesting setup, they could have gone somewhere else uh, that was a lot more interesting. And of course, like we joked about, like they deploy like all the tropes. I mean, they're really the, the neighbor that has cancer, and and you know, there's like the Santa figure that shows up, you know, and it like mysteriously knows everybody's names. Uh, I'll, I have to give a shout out to Peru for making another appearance in a movie that we watched. And of course, they treat Peru, Peru like it's a fucking third world country. I know, yeah. Like uh, Tim Allen and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's daughter joins the Peace Corps, and so she gets sent to Peru, and they're like, please be careful. <laughs> <laughs> and they're talking about jungles, and then her boyfriend, now to be fiance, like turns out to be from Peru, and they just don't take well to that. It adds to the overwhelming sense of racism that the movie has. It's like, if it's not white, it's not right type of thing. Yeah, overall, it's a very, uh, yeah, it's a pretty whitewashed neighborhood. Uh, you're right. There's uh, there's nobody there that would add, like, some variety. The only black guy in the neighborhood is the one that Tim Allen doesn't take seriously enough to rob his house. Right. <laughs> it's the one that, one, is leaving the, the neighborhood. Yeah. He will not spend uh, Christmas surrounded by these whiteies. And uh, and two, yeah, Tim Allen decides to just rob his home. And Cheech Marin's a cop. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, well, he's there, too. But he might as it's, well be white. It's it, so bad. Yeah. So it, bad. It's a terrible movie. There's no, like, uh, not enough emphasis to, you know, put it. But, but it made a killing. Didn't it? Didn't you say it made a lot? It made almost a hundred million dollars. Yeah. But its fucking budget was sixty million because he had to pay Tim Allen and fucking Jamie Lee Curtis. Right, but when you think about the fact that it made, I mean, a hundred million dollars—that's so much money—and mm-hmm. it just doesn't. And that was eleven years ago, money. Right. In I don't Before know. goddamn Obama got in office. <laughs> um. I just that is that's fucking insane because you and I were watching it though just based on our experiences and like the work we've done you can tell the exact audience that was watching it too it was just fucking white seniors just like yeah (laughs) that's Christmas all right (laughs) yeah Jamie Lee Curtis fighting for the last ham in the supermarket it's it's just kind of it's pretty embarrassing. I felt bad for her. Like, yeah, I feel bad for her too. Again, I don't feel bad for Tim Allen because he, I like him, but he does a lot of shit. Yeah, and it's one of those things like you know, in, anyone listening like outside of like you know like our little circle would be like, oh yeah, I feel bad for her making like millions and millions of dollars. It's like, yeah, but she's like a respected actress, and the watcher like have to do these scenes of just absurdity i'm sure she she made okay so the budget was 60 million so she probably got paid 20 million for this movie and it's like but still it's like fuck like watching her like chase a ham through a parking lot it's just all the prep you were in halloween you were in true lies yeah and they have this like really awkward scene where just really she's standing and so she like they they just contrive to get her into a bikini and then contrive to get her well, yeah, but still, you know, if you're Jamie Lee Curtis, you you know that they're basically they're just using your body as another like kind of trope. Uh, trope, you know, it's just like, well, of course we're gonna show you like what her boobs look now look mm. like now, and it's just so like icky, you know. Yeah. She comes out of there, and they make like they they make it last forever, and they have a priest just kind of like ogling her, and you're like, come on, guys, it's 
I'm as juvenile as the next person, and I felt weird about it, you know? <laughs> Which is like, can we just make it end already, you know? And Tim Allen comes out in a, not a thong, but a really, like, revealing... Uh, Speedo. Speedo. And, and But then he gets, like, five seconds of screen time, and then it's over. See, it seemed like that really could have been saved if the guy who played Al on Home Improvement, like, had a cameo and just came up. I don't think so, Tim. <laughs> But as bad as Christmas with the Cranks was, I finished it. But you only finished it because I was with you. Yes. I did not finish Rent. Because I wasn't with you. Oh, man. You know how I stand with musicals. I'm either all in or all out. And I I made it to light my candle. I'm impressed, honestly, that you made it that far. Because yeah. that's, that's several songs in. That's, that's about the end of the first act. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. You, you're like almost I, done introducing the characters. But I can, you know, it's kind of like the Les Mis thing. When the dialogue is sang, that's when I like check out. Like I can do like Grease or Mamma Mia or, you know, any Disney movie ever. Because <laughs> like those are usually musicals. But And I, I don't know. The subject matter... Okay, so you've seen the play, right? Yes. And you were explaining to me that the movie completely fucks it up. Yes. I mean, I, I mean, there's one thing. I mean, I, if you don't like the play, you're not going to like the movie. And uh, you, it's, uh, My checking out of it is not to say that I wouldn't like the play. It's right. just like I, what I was watching, I did not enjoy the delivery of. I, I think that they, Chris Columbus is a terrible choice as a... I don't. I don't know what they were thinking. You know, in the in the first part of the podcast, we were joking about how like that was a courageous decision from Hollywood, but really, it's just like the dumbest thing they could have done. <laughs> there was one time at some time because you know Rand was like very popular, so mm-hmm. there was rumors of the movie and who was attached forever. And at some point, Spike Lee was attached. And I was like, yeah, I can see a Rand movie made by Spike Lee because he's made. Those kind of movies that really like capture, you know, life on the street and this edgy and you know, Rent is a musical, yes, but it's about like I said, it's about people that are like they have AIDS, they're drug addicts and they're homeless, and it's like Harmony Korean should have done it. Well, but I don't like Harmony Korean. So, but but he would have done like a more interesting job than this. Like Chris Columbus is just like he just vanillified the entire thing, and it's just so painful to watch. Like I. It, the decision it just baffles me the decision to like just mutilate some of the songs and just so that instead of singing they're just speaking the lines it just sounds weird and for a while i was just thinking okay it only sounds weird to me because i know what that this is supposed to be a song and instead i'm hearing it as just regular dialogue and that's like exactly something i took away is like this is like really like Making finger quotes, controversial material that is being approached in such a milquetoast way. It's like it, it is it's like it, a Brett Ratner film. Yeah, it just so so. When you watch the musical, you're like you can feel the energy, and you don't feel the energy in the Chris Columbus uh, version. The way that he shoots most of the numbers is just so weird. It, it's almost like. He he goes for close-ups when he shouldn't be going to close-ups, and he goes to wide shots when he shouldn't be going to wide shots. It's like he has no idea how to shoot a musical. And it's not like I can tell you how to shoot a musical, but that's why I don't shoot a musical. You know what I mean? <laughs> like just give it to someone that has at least an affinity for the material and and 
and really passion for it. There's nothing in the way that this movie is shot that makes me feel that Chris Columbus has any passion for this material. It baffles me that he got the job in the first place. It's not like he has a track record. You know, you look at his filmography, and even if you love all of his movies, none of those movies seem to be steps in the journey to making rent. It seems like it was just an act of hubris on the part of the company, It's like, or the film studio, rather. It's just like, all right, this musical's big. This guy makes Christmas movies. It has to work. Because it's on Christmas. It's just so annoying. It, it's... And again, like I was telling you, the first part is so sad because they got the original cast, mm-hmm. you know, say for uh, uh, the girl that plays Mimi because they got Rosario Dawson. But they this is the last time that you were going to see them. You, you know, you don't get to make this movie again. If you were to remake Rent, it would be like 20 years from now. And there's no way that those guys get to play the characters. Yeah. So this was they had to get it right. And they got it so wrong. It's a testament. It's kind of like with Amazing Spider-Man 2. Where you know, Which I'm I like, still haven't seen, but you know, it's like it's horrible. And but the is it the, really that bad? It's really bad. It's really, it's so bad. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's obviously worse if you're a Spider Man fan, which like I am, especially so. now, like since more people have seen it, I've heard like on Twitter and stuff, I um, a lot of people with like the wrestling climate the way it is, like call it like the amazing Spider-Man two era and stuff like that. So. It, it, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it's, it's so bad. Well, this has nothing to do with the quality actually, but you know, I was going to say it's so bad that it killed the franchise and now they're like rebooting it again. Again. Yeah. Do you know this? No. Like, yeah. The next Spider-Man is going to be someone else and it's actually. Sony- so despite like the personal conversations you and I had and like the backlash, it's worse than the first amazing Spider-Man. Yes, I think so. It's because it just fucking uh, Jamie Foxx as Electro is pretty terrible. It's the story's bloated, uh, and it just it's such a waste of of good stuff. You know the elements of the Spider Man mythos are there, and they just they're wasted. But does it have any scene in it nearly as good as the Coldplay scene in the first Amazing Spider Man? Yes. And that's uh, that was where I was going because the the death of Gwen Stacy, you know, it's like an iconic moment in in comics history and in Marvel history and Spider Man history, and they they play it pretty close to what it was in the comics, which you know goes back to my point that I've always made, which is you have to be trying extra hard to fuck up the death of Gwen Stacy, <laughs> and uh, so as as incompetent as the rest of filmmaking is in the movie it doesn't quite get to the level to where it can ruin that moment. So the the little, the final fight, the climax of the movie, where it's uh, Spider-Man versus Green Goblin with Gwen's life in the balance, that stuff is pretty thrilling. Uh, and it's surrounded by, like, shit, you know? And it's kind of like the same thing here with Rent, where, like, some of the moments in the musical are so good that no matter how incompetent the filmmaking is, they still manage to, like, get through a little bit. You know, there are sequences that are, like... And, you know, I'll give Chris Columbus some credit. Some stuff is shot decently, you know, but overall it's just so such a mismatch of filmmaker and material. And I really... I think it's a really tough blow for fans of the musical that were waiting forever for this to make it to the big screen. And then it makes it, and it's just, like... It's just shit. It's, like, forgettable at best, infuriatingly bad at worst. Uh... It doesn't surprise me that you didn't make it through. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't make anybody sit through that movie. You know, I do it. I own the movie because it's like, well, it's the closest I'm gonna get to rent movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and I love the the music and everything. But he's just, God, that it's just infuriating. Every time I watch it, it just, 
makes me mad. Like every choice he makes, it's not right. It's the only movie we chose for our little uh, summation here that didn't like return. It had budget was forty million. It made thirty one. Right, and it's a shame because that at first glance you'd be like, well, that reflects on the musical. You know, it's like it shouldn't have made, been made into a movie, and it's like no, it just should have been made into a movie by someone else. Well, it proves to what you're saying too is that. He's a manipulative director that at a certain point doesn't know how to spin everything and to make it like, you know, Christmas with the Cranks. He was able to do that. You have Tim Allen, Jamie Lee Curtis. It's Christmas time. You can spin it like I don't remember the trailer, but I'm sure it featured <laughs> come on, hear the noise and like all back in black by ACDC and all these fucking songs. But um, yeah, he can only spin that needle so far. Yeah, I, it's I like think Spielberg. hundred million regardless of what happens, but. Yeah, it really it, – you knew something was wrong from the very beginning when, you know, with the changes. And I know that it's – I'll be the first person to tell you whenever somebody complains about a movie adaptation not being like the original source to tell – well, you need to judge the movie on its own terms. And it's hard. The, the, the bigger a fan you are of the original material, it's harder to just be objective when you're, you know, yeah. judging the movie. But in, in this case – it really feels like every adaptation scene that he that he chose, you know, every choice he makes, it's just it's just wrong. There is a character. Uh, I don't think you got that far, but they're always talking about Mark's like lesbian girlfriend, and uh, in the mo- in the show, it's funny because every time whenever they make an allusion to her, it's funny because it's done in a song, and somehow that makes it okay. Here, every time can see remove the, remove the music every time that they mention Maureen and the fact that she's a lesbian. It just feels like a really bad, outdated joke because there's no music behind it, right? And uh, anyway, in the in the show, it builds up. Just a exactly, exactly, and and in the show, it builds up to you know you don't see her until the very end of, of I don't know if it's the first act. I don't remember if it, there's an intermission, but she gets her very own like big entrance like later in the movie, and you're like, oh, that's her, and she's it's like badass in the movie. She shows up in a flashback and or in a fantasy sequence, like completely robbing her entrance <laughs> from her. <laughs> it, it's just it just shows like a basic, uh, a, a flawed understanding of the very basic way that the story works and the way it was set up. You know, it's just it's just bad. It's just overall terrible. So, is he the Christmas director or is he the manipulative Christmas director? I think he just sucks. <laughs> or excuse me, not director, filmmaker. <laughs> He's here's the thing. He has a career going that's not going anywhere. He can make movies that make money. You know, he got he made he has to be a big reason why those first two Harry Potters made a lot of money. He is he can make movies that make money and that's I don't begrudge anybody for financing his movies cuz obviously they'll make a return. Yeah. But He's unfortunately he's PT Anderson. Uh, he is not right, but there's also this uh, trend where like a lot of his movies are just like adaptations of original material, and I can only fear, uh, you, you know, anytime that I hear that he's going to adapt something, I just wonder if it's something that I like that's going to get trash. I mean, he did I Love You, Beth Cooper, which I love the book, and the movie is just again, it's 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 like Rent. It's just toothless, and everything that made the book special is gone from the movie. That movie is trash. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a shame because the book is really funny, but it doesn't. It gets lost in translation when Chris Columbus touches it. Uh, Bicentennial Man. I haven't read the book, but I have to imagine that it's better than the movie because the movie is just shit, you know. And 
but he can do something that appeals to people because I mean Percy Jackson he did the first Percy Jackson and it did well enough that they made a second one. And- yeah, he clearly has a gift and he can take something and write it to where it appeals to the mass. I mean, Rents uh an exception, but that's also a story that you know AIDS polarizes people to begin with. Right. I mean, your- I mean, and maybe we should be feeling bad for him because maybe Rent was the one attempted, you know, where he wanted to stretch out and just do something else, and instead, he and you know, it just didn't work out. Yeah. Because when you hear the word AIDS, them Trump supporters already are checking out. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's like, oh, it's like the gays and the homeless. Yeah, and- but the fact that he made, wrote and was able to be contributing to Christmas with the Cranks making $100 million, which, like I said, is the worst movie you and I have watched for this. And it's one of those movies. It's 90 minutes, and it felt like <laughs> fucking we were watching Blue's Warmest Color again. <laughs> Mind you, Blue's Warmest Color is an incredible film, but it's quite long. Uh, I don't know if I've ever watched a ninety-minute movie that it, like it felt that long. It's just so bad and so painful. But like you and I and the experiences we've had watching that, I could see exactly where like the milk toast American crowd was like laughing at it, and I was just like, "This is so bad," and it's so insulting to my intelligence that like people would go out and pay to watch that. Yeah, it's it's not good at all, and it's. You, and he wrote that. I mean, the, we don't know what the book was like, but he... He wrote that for fucking senior America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's not to say that senior America can't support good movies, because they could, you know? They could, but do they? But do... Well, if they have to choose between, you know, Christmas with the Cranks and, like, a better movie when they go, a more challenging movie when they go to a, a movie theater, they're going to go with Christmas with the Cranks. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, and if you're a, one of our senior citizen listeners <laughs> that does not fit this bill, then good for you. Yeah. And you, you should tell if your If you chose the master over the help, send us a tweet. <laughs> I wonder what was playing when Christmas with the Cranks came out, you know, because really you should have watched that. No yeah. What. <laughs> Whatever it, it was. It doesn't matter what it was, but you should have, you should have gone for that. Uh, no. Yeah. Overall, I'm just going back to my opening statement of the second part. I just, okay. So I haven't, uh, yeah, I don't hate Chris Columbus because I don't know Chris Columbus. But I hate Chris Columbus as a filmmaker. His filmmaking just... And that's not to say I haven't enjoyed some of his movies. Mrs. Doubtfire. I'm cool with Mrs. Doubtfire. I'm I'm fine with Home Alone 1 and even 2. I mean, I laughed. You know, they're flawed, but I laughed. And, uh, you know, uh, Gremlins is great and he wrote it. I remember enjoying young Sherlock Holmes and Goonies, you know. The, but anytime I see his name attached to a movie, I just... I fear. Get, yeah, I fear. I get a feeling if it's a, if it's a property that I'm familiar with, I just get angry. Um, you know, I have no investment in per- Percy Jackson, and I was surprised to see that he was named behind Pixels. It's Josh Gad, and even I, <laughs> I wouldn't watch it just because it's Chris Columbus. <sighs> we don't have anything to end on that's like happy because we need to talk. It's Christmas or whatever. Well, we can we can talk about how we both watched. Star Wars? Star Wars. And it was amazing. It was awesome. It It was was the greatest thing ever. Star Wars is back, and you should watch it. It'll be really busy at the movie theaters anywhere you go. But It's one of those things It just makes you realize Star Wars never left. It's just no one knew what to do with it. Exactly. Yes. I I wish 
I mean, I'm not. There's, there's no point because there's. If you go online, you'll find people that either hate this new movie or are disappointed with it, and they just, they just want to talk about how. And all those the, people had their mind made up going into it that they weren't going to like it. Yeah, and 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 that's fine if you don't like it. It, it, it. There's what I found is there's no point in arguing with those people because, yeah. like you said, they already made up their mind. Uh, but I've had also like just interesting discussions with people that like it and maybe they didn't like it as much as I did or they liked it for different reasons or whatever that are like and it's fun, you know, exchanging like our ideas about what happened in the movie and certain scenes and how they take this character and this new character. And it really feels like once again there's this entire world of possibilities mm-hmm. for where the franchise is gonna go next. And it's And it's really nice interesting feeling. like what a pie you can make when George Lucas doesn't have his finger in it. No kidding. I mean, you know, I sometimes I feel bad about how much he gets bashed, but you can't argue with the results. <laughs> you can't <laughs> he, he was completely absent from this this one movie and it turned out great. Mm-hmm. And the last three movies not not so much. In fact they were you know Pretty and, bad at times. And Daisy Ridley, hubba hubba. It's, you know, let's hope she doesn't marry Kevin Klein and quit acting. <laughs> because that, that, that would that would suck. So yeah, definitely go see the new Star Wars. I honestly can't recommend it enough. That is that makes for a good Christmas this year. Yeah, that's, it does. It's not directed by Chris Columbus, so it's, yeah, that's good. And uh, and Kylo Ren's lightsaber is kind of like a Christmas tree. Yes, yeah, yeah I, I can see that. I, I can see that. There's a, yeah, there, it really, it's probably the best Christmas movie going on right now. I don't, what else is coming out? I mean, you have Alvin and the Chipmunks, Sisters, Sisters. Yeah, none of that looks good. Uh, Which that's this, the right strategy but on Sisters' part, not Alvin and the Chipmunks. Alvin and the Chipmunks is gonna make like four bucks, but <laughs> Sisters is for like the annoyed like twenty-something couples going out. I don't want to watch Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's something else coming out on Christmas that's big and I can't remember. I know they pushed Kung Fu Panda because it was supposed to come out on Christmas and now it's coming out. In... <laughs> and then anyone with common sense on Star Wars and was like, <laughs> nope. <laughs> Let's save this one. Uh, no, there's a couple, like there's this movie about the financial crisis, uh, The Big Short, I think, as a, uh, Christian Bale, a bunch of other good actors. It's supposed to be good. Directed by Adam McKay. So that's weird. Oh, you know that, what I'm talking about? Isn't like Ryan Gosling in that? Yes, shit? yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, and then your boy, our boy, uh, is coming out on Christmas with Joy, uh, Jennifer Lawrence from uh, All Tour. Uh, David O. Russell. David O. Russell coming out with Joy on Christmas Day, and it's been getting some pretty horrible reviews. Good. So wouldn't it be funny if we had to do a positive episode about it? There you go. Like David O. Russell is Chris Columbus. <laughs> Is is the Chris Columbus of uh of, the artsy Chris Columbus of minimalizing uh, mental issues in human beings <laughs> and making it trivialized and using you know depression as a trope for romantic comedies? Have you seen a trailer for Joy? Yeah, because I haven't. I did, but apparently it's based on a true story. I like Jennifer Lawrence, but her films so far have done zilch for me. Um. Yep. <laughs> I was trying to think of something because I didn't even care much for Winter's Bone, but I think she's good. It's just no, she's great. It's just like what she's made so far has done nothing to appeal to me. But anyway, all right. So do we have any Christmas plugs besides Star Wars that that obviously didn't need our plug? No, Star Wars is doing fine without our <laughs> yeah. endorsement. Well, <laughs> we're really gonna push it over the top. <laughs> that will make it to like 
500 billion <laughs> in one instead of just 500 billion. Yeah, exactly. Last episode, I recommended you guys watch Monday Night Raw because they need your support, but now just just don't. You're giving up on it? Yeah. This, l- let your voice be heard and not watch. Well, wh- when you say last episode, do you mean like the... Uh, the Man of the Year was when... Which will come out after this. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, I guess we're playing with the timeline. So that's going to do it for this Christmas Bono episode. Julio, have safe travels this holiday season. I will. I will be uh, editing this in Peru, which will be really exciting. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's. Does the internet work the same there? Um, <laughs> Is there like a guy on like an elliptical bike just pedaling really fast to make it go? You know, for the longest time it was just dial up, but I I, I think we're good now. All right, now well, we're on a the super dial up. <laughs> I'll, that's gonna be crazy. I'll be in fucking bumfuck Virginia accepting the the email of this file. So yeah, technology. All right, so that's gonna do it for us here on the Contrarians. Have a good holiday, Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, whatever you do. Listen to Bruce Springsteen's cover of Santa Claus is Coming to Town, and it will be a good one. Anything else to add, Julio? Not really. I mean, I guess if what is like we know your your movie, your Christmas movie is Family Stone. Yes. I don't know that I have a Christmas movie. But is that like a thing? Like the most people have Christmas movies? Yeah. You should have your go-to Christmas movie. I mean, I don't because I don't like, I don't watch movies on Christmas. I've got Elf, Home Alone, and Family Stone. I, I haven't seen Elf. You haven't seen Elf? I, I haven't seen Elf. Jesus. I Die Hard? Yes. I mean, it's not, but none of those are movies I watch on Christmas. On Christmas, I don't watch TV. I am either working or <laughs> sleeping <laughs> because I worked the day before. Uh... So I don't know. Maybe I should start that. I should start like Christmas. Movie. I should like pick a Christmas movie and stick with it. That'll be for our next episode, uh, which is going to be twenty-five. Yes, episode twenty-five. But really, we don't know because, I mean, when you say our next episode, maybe the next episode will be. What are we posting before and after this? Okay, so the next episode we record is going to be episode twenty-five, which yes. is Modern Times with Charlie Chaplin. So. For that episode, I'm assigning Julio for you to come up with a Christmas movie that you're going to watch every year at Christmas time. Who has the time to do that? <laughs> but okay. Tim Allen. Can it be? Can it be? Does it have to be Christmas themed, or can it just be like a movie that makes me think of Christmas? It can be a movie that makes you think of Christmas. I just you just need to have one. Because maybe I'll pick The Force Awakens because I'll be like, I watch it on Christmas. Well, there you go. There's kind of snow in it. I think there is. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Good then. A Christmas tree esque lightsaber. I'm not, I'm not sticking to that yet. Uh, give me until next recording. But yeah. All right. Well, do turn in next time to see what Julio's Christmas movie for the rest of his life will be. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that was uh, Columbus Day. This is Christmas. This is the Contrarians. We thank you for listening. We're right and you're wrong. <laughs>
I'll take care of this. We have gremlins in the projection booth. Could you help us? Gremlins? In this theater? Now? Okay, you guys, listen up. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Do I have to come up there myself? Do you think the Grimsters can stand up to the Hulkster? Well, if I were you, I'd run the rest of Gremlins too, right now. Sorry, folks. It won't happen again.